Did you ever think you were made it? I feel I'm so close I could take sweet victory. I know this life meant for me. Yeah, why would you bet on Goliath when we got bet David? Value taming, giving values contagious. This world of entrepreneurs, we get no value to haters. How they run, homie? Look what I become. I'm the, I'm the one. I'm Patrick your host of Aitim, and today I'm sitting down with the shadow himself, Dorian Yates, six-time Mr. Olympia. I call him a genius scientist. He had no filters. He called out a lot of different people, existing people in the past, people he competed with. There was nothing this man was willing to hold back. Again, if you like bodybuilding, if you like going to the gym, if you like fitness, you're going to like the way Dorian Yates communicates his message to you. Dorian, thanks for coming down, man. Thanks for having me on. Man. Appreciate you. Yeah, I've been really looking forward Very to this interesting. one. Yeah, yeah, me too. Me too. So, so you were in LA. I know you went to uh, Mr. Olympia. You yeah, kind of had a in, chance uh, to be there. I was in LA at uh, Gold's Gym, where I think we met mm -hmm. many years ago. I was there doing a training camp, and then from there we went to to Vegas, watching the Mr. Olympia, and uh, I stopped by in Dallas for a couple of days. Then I go to Mexico. Then I go back to LA, and then I fly back to Europe. So, are you constantly traveling, or no? This is it's just been, the season been, right it's now. It's been pretty busy. Last uh, couple of years with uh, various dis different things that I'm that I'm into with my business and then the the training and uh, ayahuasca camp down in Costa Rica now so quite a few things in in different directions so there's been a, a lot of traveling over the what, last what's travel of like years. three months out of you four months five months what, what would you say to you, you never know because it, it it depends what comes up Got it. but um, I probably I travel pretty much every month for a week or so, on average, I would guess. And I know you live in Spain right now, but uh, you know, going back to uh, Gold Gym, I read, a, a, a read somewhere a story about the fact that you went to Gold Gym one time, and apparently all the pros can go uh, work out there for free, but one of the front desk clerks couldn't recognize you. Yeah, it was a funny story, because uh, as you know, probably back in the day, in the 90s, Gold's Gym was owned by a small group of people, and it's very, f like a family mm -hmm. atmosphere, and everybody knew everybody, and I would go there, and of course, if you're Mr. Olympia or if you're a top pro, they, you know, you train there for free. They're very happy to have you there and welcome you and all that kind of stuff. But it had been some time since I've been there and the gym had sold out, I guess, to whoever, I don't know, a corporation. So they got people working there that maybe they're not that familiar with, with the bodybuilding. So I've gone there to work out and I'm like, hey, I'd like to train, please. And the girl's like, whatever, it's $40 or whatever it was. So I don't want to jump straight in there like, hey, you know, don't you Dorian know who I am. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm like, well, I don't normally pay to train here. Uh, why is that? Uh, because I'm a pro, you know, pros, we don't usually train. But okay, but I, how do I know if you're a pro? Have you got some proof? So at that point, I'm like, well, if you want to swing around <laughs> <laughs> and look on the wall right behind you, the big picture there with Dorian Yates on, that's me. That's so, me. Oh, okay. Let me speak to the manager. What so, was the reaction? Was there? Was there? Did the boss come out? I was like, oh my gosh, that's Dorian. Let him in. Ah, uh, yeah. Eventually, and, and now, I mean, <coughs> now it's it's great. They know me, and yeah. I go there and train my people and get a great reception. But uh, I think it was maybe the the changeover uh, of crew and everything. So yeah, that was a little bit amusing. Do, do you do you see a little bit of that also happening with the brand of Mr. Olympia? I know you went from there to Mr. Yeah. Olympia. Does that also kind of happen a little bit? Because I'm hearing mixed uh, feelings well, from a lot of old timers. I think what's happened is uh, the Mr. Olympia was, you know, the pinnacle of, of bodybuilding. And bodybuilding per se was very popular in the 80s and the 90s. And I would say 
bodybuilding as such, professional bodybuilding, has declined in its popularity and the number of people that's maybe getting involved with it. But there's a whole lot of other classes that, that are around now that, that didn't used to be around. We just used to have bodybuilding. Mm -hmm. Now you've got bodybuilding Mr. Olympia, you've got the 212 class for the smaller guys. Now you've got a classic physique category that's kind of, I guess, a pushback against the bodybuilding where a lot of people felt the guys were getting too big and, you know, uh, not looking aesthetic. So they created this class, which is, you know, if you're a certain height, you can only go up to a certain weight. So they're looking for that kind of classic physique like Frank Zane or this kind of... Then you've got men's physique, which is basically kind of like an advanced beach body. Really, they're looking for a good upper body and, and they wear board shorts, so mm -hmm. not much reason to train legs. Do you like that idea with the... I just make fun of them because I'm... Do you really? I make fun of them, but it's lighthearted. It's like, uh, I'm not one of these people that's in a camp. Like bodybuilding's great and, and the CrossFit is, is terrible or I'm, I'm a big believer in any kind of exercise, man. Like whatever works for you. If, you. if you find CrossFit works for you and you like that, do that. If you like men's physique and you don't want to train your legs and you just want to train your upper body, it's much better than sitting on your ass and, and doing nothing and mm -hmm. watching TV or mm -hmm. whatever. So any kind of exercise, man. I'm, I, I don't really do bodybuilding myself these days because I have some injuries and I don't feel it's really what I need. So I do yoga, I do Pilates, I do biking, I do even some CrossFit classes sometimes. So, so zero, you're not hitting weights at all right now? No, because it got to a point where I felt it wasn't really benefiting me. I got a pretty bad shoulder injury. I got a detached supraspinatus, which makes that shoulder very, very weak. Um, I tore a bicep on this left side, I tore a tricep. So this left side is, is much weaker than, than the right side. So Is that the same I, biceps as back in the days? Yeah, exactly. It's the same one. So it's all on the same side, all on the same side where Got I had it. these injuries. I, I, you know, the, sure, they're all related. Once you get one injury, the, the stress moves somewhere else and it's easy to get another injury. Um, so it means if, if I lift weights, it's kind of an imbalance and then this shoulder starts hurting. And I had some aches and pains and I felt a bit stiff. And I just got it like, uh, I got to work on my mobility and my flexibility and uh, started looking to yoga. And I've been doing that for about three years and I love it. I love going hiking, I love biking. I like using my body as a, as a vehicle. And when I was in bodybuilding, I was so immersed in it, like a tunnel vision that I literally did nothing else. I thought about nothing else. So now uh, I'm enjoying being you know, multi-dimensional and, and doing a lot of things that, that I couldn't do then, or at least I told myself I couldn't do them. That's one of the interesting things about you. There, there is, you know, when you peel the onion, you're like, okay, so this guy's a six-time Mr. Olympia bodybuilder, you know, the shadow, the lat spread, the Christmas tree, and you're like, uh, here was his upbringing. He has opinions on 9-11. What's that all about? He has opinions on psycho... Where is... And then he's a... The more you go, the more there is yeah. depth to Doran Yates, and that's what I think what uh, makes it so interesting for the audience to want to know more about you. But when you were at Mr. Olympia, this last one that you went, do you, how did you feel about the whole contest? Did you, I mean, obviously Brandon Curry won. What yeah. did you think about Brandon Curry as a physique, as a winner? Well, I mean, I respect all the guys up there. They're all doing their best. But if I'm to be honest, and that's, <laughs> that's pretty much normally what I am, I feel the standard of the Mr. Olympia uh, is not what it used to be. 
the whole thing's diversified. You've got all these different categories and classes and everything, but the Mr. Olympia, the pure bodybuilding itself, um, you had three guys there that, were, you know, I guess they were pretty close. Uh, there was two guys in, in what I would say, pretty good shape. You know, they were in, they were in good shape, but they're who, quite who small. Were the two guys. Yeah, um, William Bonak. Okay, second. Place. And um, a guy from Iran. Hadi Chopin. Yeah, I don't couldn't pronounce his name. Uh, very good and in good shape, but they're smaller guys. Mm. They're smaller guys, and so Brandon won it, I believe, because he got more stature. He's bigger. It looks more like a Mr. Olympia, but he wasn't in incredible shape. Um, so I think it was probably one of the weaker, weaker so, Mr. Olympias that, that we've seen. What do you look at when you look at this? I'm curious, like your eyes, yeah. where does it go first? And then where does it go? Because uh, when I look okay. at it, you know, the average person looks at it, it's like, oh my gosh, this yeah. guy's a beast. What do you look at? Well, he's got very um, good fullness, good roundness to the muscles, and no really noticeable weak points in that, in that pose. But he's lacking deep separation and conditioning that used to be the norm in the Mr. Olympia. The conditioning part. Yeah, the conditioning is, and that was is what's lacking these days. And that was a between you and uh, Kevin Lavron as well. Would you agree with that? Where some of the times he would show up pretty full, yeah. but he wasn't yeah, as... Yeah, Kevin had a great physique, but <coughs> he didn't, it wasn't consistent in coming in. You know, sometimes he did, sometimes he didn't, but he wasn't consistent in coming in that kind of shape. So you see the fullness, but you still don't call this to be fully cut up or conditioned? No, you wouldn't put I'd this at that I'd probably be like in that shape around about six weeks before the contest. This so is I six would consider weeks to still, you. Yeah, I would still consider this is six work in progress, you. work to do. So this during your era with the, the guys competing, El Sombati, yeah. you know, all the guys that were running at that time, Ray, Cormier, all those guys. How, how would today's body do during that time? Um, Brandon Curry, this physique. He definitely wouldn't place in the top six. He wouldn't place he wouldn't in the top place six in the, in the 90s? No. Why, why do you say that? Is it purely based on the, the you guys were more because disciplined than today? I don't know the reasons, all the, all, you know, all the factors yeah. involved. Um, but you look at the top six in the 90s, you had myself, Kevin Lavrone, Flex Wheeler, Sean Ray, Nassau Sambate. I believe all those physiques are superior to the winners that we had in the last couple of years. You know, I want to ask this question from you, you know, because it, it, this is a typical debate that happens in every sport, right? Yeah. The debate was Jordan was coming up and the guys prior to him will say, well, he would have never lasted right. in the 70s or the yeah. 80s, you know? Or, you know, you would have never been able to play during Jordan's era because it was real foul, you know? The Jordan's rules, when he played against the Pistons, they really beat you up, right? So a LeBron couldn't have lasted or Steph Curry would have never existed. Do, do you think a part of that is also that the old generation has so much pride behind what they did that they always, it's like the, you know, uh, my father saying, you know, I was born and raised in Iran and you were born and raised in Iran, but when I was born and raised in Iran, I had to get out of school at eight, you know, eighth grade and I had to work and do all that. And you hear those stories. Yeah. Do you think there's an element it, of it was, that? It was better in my days. Yeah, it was <laughs> tougher in my days. But do you think there's, a, there's an element of that or is it the fact that there was fewer distractions where you guys were forced to be so disciplined because you, had, you didn't have a lot of different options yeah. to make it work? Um, for instance, heavyweight boxing. I think we, we probably, if you're a fan of boxing, you can accept that in the 70s, there was Muhammad Ali, there was Ken Norton, there was Joe Fraser, there was George Foreman. That was probably a peak of heavyweight boxing. 
I think experts so, would agree with you on that. So for some reason, at that time, there was a lot of, you know, there's a lot of talent just coming at that time for, mm -hmm. for various factors and various reasons. And I think that's probably the case in the 90s. And again, there was just bodybuilding. There was not all these other categories. There was not even, for instance, a guy now maybe who would have been interested in going to bodybuilding before. Maybe now he's doing CrossFit or maybe he's doing MMA or maybe he's doing man's physique or classic physique. And so there's many more avenues that an athlete could go down. So if you've got a smaller pool, genetic pool of, of talent, obviously then it's going to be harder for the, for the standard to be up there. So I just think there was just a lot of really good guys all at one time in the 90s. Any one of those guys on a given day could be Mr. Olympia, like five or six guys. To date. Yeah. Or even then, you know, if, if I was off, badly off, somebody could have beat me, or, you know, uh, who plays second to me? Kevin LeBron plays second to me. Sean Ray. Sean Ray plays second to oh, me. Sambati. Flex Wheeler plays second. Nassau Sambati. So it was constantly, you know, going back and yeah. forth, depending on, on who was in shape at the time. I, I remember Flex Wheeler once said, he says, uh, I never saw Dorian as beatable. But that's Flex Wheeler. Like, Flex yeah. Wheeler during that time was a human specimen. Like, he was the LeBron James of bodybuilding. You looked at his physique and you're like, how does this make yeah. any sense? But yeah. he himself didn't psychologically think you that, were beatable. Well, that's the advantage that I had over him. I had a little bit more mental tenacity. Probably Flex had more natural talent than me because let's say that I did everything and I put and I achieved 100% and like my effort and dedication and so I got 100% of my potential fulfilled. We'll never know, but let's say for argument that I did, I would say that Flex probably maybe did 70% because he might break his diet a little bit. Would his 100 have beaten you? Very possibly. Meaning could you have won a single one if Flex was 100% there? We'll never know, but uh, I do say when, logical when, guy, when, though. When, when we were competing together, <coughs> I said, like, if this guy did what I do, I have a real hard time beating him. Because I know he I, did what you yeah, did. Yeah, if he did what I did, if he had my brain, my approach, my uh, dedication, because he seemed to develop this phenomenal physique with not. Uh, you know, an absolute great deal of effort. It, it came quite easy to him, uh, I think. And I think sometimes when things come easy, you don't feel, you don't need to really look and search for that, you know, to do that 100% because it's, it's already there, I right? I agree. This is the one part I was curious about. I mean, I used to party in LA when I got out of yeah. the military. And when you and I met, the whole picture of you and I, uh, when we met uh, years and years ago, this is... Uh, yeah, I'm about 100 pounds... <laughs> Heavier there almost, 80, 90 pounds. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm like 220 now, 225, and I was probably 300 plus there. You were massive yeah. when I met you. Oh, I look at pictures of myself now, and holy shit, what is what that? What do you think about it when you see it today? You, uh, like so, you know, so, you know, it's not like I look at pictures of myself every day, but sometimes a picture will come sure. up on a, a social media or something like that, and I'm like, holy shit, man, that was, yeah, that was extreme. So if we put the leader's bulletin on who won the most in the 90s, it's you, yeah. okay? You got six, okay? But if we put the leader's bulletin on who had most fun, where would you be ranked? Would you be ranked at the bottom? 
Probably. Probably at the <laughs> Probably, bottom. Probably, yeah. Isn't it, isn't, it's well, there's a, a trade-off, man. There's yeah. a trade-off. Like, uh, I just put absolute dedication into this, and fun was, like, something I can do later. Um, I'm doing this right now, and uh, having too much fun might interfere. And I think that's kind of why, one of the reasons that I stayed where I was in England, although well, there was, you know, some pressure for me to move to California. I was working for the Weeder company, for the magazines, Joe Weeder. They would like me to be out there so they'd have more access to me and, you know, do more photos, do more stuff. And then, you know, like you say, you're in L.A., it's full of hot chicks, full of parties, nice weather. I was scared to relax, man, because if I relaxed a little bit and enjoyed it, maybe I'd just lose it, you know? So I want to stay isolated, stay in U.K., stay in Birmingham, like where my point. gym was, yeah. and just keep my head down and go to the gym and train and come home and eat and sleep and just that whole routine which is like a training camp mm -hmm. which people might do for two or three months before a contest I took that approach year round you know and, and so at that point you're married I'm assuming you're married yeah I was so married so the entire yeah. time you compete professionally you were married uh, I wasn't married the whole time but I was with my partner and then we got married uh, I think we got married after I got second in the Olympia because we had a bit of money <laughs> <laughs> you know, we had to oh, afford to get married and get money, a holiday. Purely money issue, they yeah, didn't get I mean, married. You know, and I thought it was time. Like, hey, I, you know, I like, I got to this place and this woman's been with me and supporting me and like, yeah, we should get married now. Did you see that as a formula amongst winners? Like the, the guys who won at the top consistently were married with fewer distractions than the guys that were second, third, fourth place? Well, uh, was that a trend? the guy that was an inspiration for me was Lee Haney because he was Mr. Olympia before me. He was mm -hmm. Mr. Olympia pretty much when I started. He was Mr. Olympia from 84. And Lee Haney was a married man and he was a family man. And uh, I think they had a, a kid as well pretty around the same time as me. So he was somebody I could look at like, well, this is a family guy. I can relate to him. And uh, a lot of the other guys were single. So I wasn't. That you know, uh, early on, uh, so Lee Haney was an inspiration for me, like how to like you know balance your family and and the the sport and so on, and for sure I think it gives you it gives you that stability. If you're single and you've got all these distractions, parties, girls, and mm -hmm. you know that pulls you out of your uh, training mode. I mean, I remember I'd go to Century Club in L.A. I don't know if you've ever been to Century Club. You probably heard never of heard of. Oh, you've heard, heard of it. Okay, yeah. go to Century Club in L.A. and all these guys would be there. Yeah. all of them. Yeah. Okay. So you would see her like, this guy's partying pretty hard. I know the name. I just saw yeah. you at a competition. Yeah. You go to Vegas late, all this after hours. I'm like, right. these guys are training, you know, and partying hardcore is what they were doing. But uh, nobody heard anything about you. You were quiet on your no. own island doing your thing. You were just coming and winning. I didn't one want anyone another. to hear anything about me. I didn't want anyone to know too much about me. Is that part of your personality? It's part of my personality. I like my privacy. And it works psychologically as well because I've become an enigma that they cannot get a handle on me. I mean, they don't see me. They see each other in the gym every day. So, oh, so-and-so, yeah, you see him is having a down day today. He's doing you know, an argument with his girlfriend. Or you see this guy, he doesn't look so good. And, you know, blah, 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 blah. So everyone got to like handle on each other. But Dorian, no, That's because true. I was out of the, you know, I was out of the wow. picture. They didn't know nothing. Just like this, creating this monster in their mind that's, just in this basement and is throwing weights around and is, you know, um, creating this mystique where they, you know, they, they accepted they couldn't beat me. And if they're telling themselves they can't beat me, then 
For sure, they can't beat Absolutely. me. I mean, this, it's, it's they're creating their own reality yeah, with, a, with a thought. It's not possible. If you say he is unbeatable... Then that will be so. Then it's game over yeah. already, if you say that. How much of your, your formula for winning was your wiring on how you were born? Like, this is how I've been since I was a kid. I yeah. kind of watched everybody. And yeah. I was a guy that would sit home, wouldn't say loud, and I watch what he's doing, what he's doing, what he's doing. And how much of it was your benefit of... Uh, 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 you know, from when your father passed, I think you were living in a city called Hurley. I don't know if the name. Yeah, is a little. Uh, it's kind of a little farm. We had some horses and chickens and 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 dogs and stuff it's like that. It's a small that. community. Yeah, small community. And then you moved to Birmingham. Yeah, but I mean, I'm, looking back, I did some unusual things when I was a kid. Like, no, but nobody told me that was unusual. Like, nobody really said anything to me. Uh, one time, we had a, a a charity run at school, and it was like around the 400 meter track. They wanted to buy a new minibus for the school or something. They have money money for a bus, so they, they want to raise money. So we got sponsored. So you go around knocking on doors and like, will you sponsor me so much a lap? You know, run around the track. So yeah, five pence, 10 pence, whatever it was. And I remember there was another guy who was a runner. He was from a family of boxers. So they're all lightweight boxers. So he's real wiry. And he, he told me he was a great runner. And I told him, I'm, I'm better running than you. I probably wasn't, but I told him I was. So we had this thing where we we're going to see who was a better runner when we run around the track. So we're running around, you know, kids do five laps, six laps, they're, they're dropping out. It gets to 10, 15 laps, just me and this other guy, right? And I'm like, I can't give up because I'm not going to give up. I've got to keep going, right? Kept going, kept going. 20 laps or something like that, the guy drops out. Oh, I beat him. Wow. But then something happened to me, like I didn't feel anything. And I just kept running, kept running like Forrest Gump, <laughs> running, running, running. I went around the track 45 times. Everyone had gone home except for the teacher that Get had to witness this thing and sign the paper that you've actually done this. And she said, Dorian, you've got to stop now. I've got to go home. You've got to go home. <laughs> <laughs> How old are you at this time? Like 11. At 11 years yeah. old. Yeah. So then I went around to all the people that promised to pay me five pence a lap. I'm like, go, and I got 45, what? <laughs> <We're> <laughs> How much money am I going to pay you? Yeah. 45 laps, is that real? I'm like, yeah, the teacher signed it there, look. Wow. You know? But I don't even, didn't even occur to me that it was unusual at the time. And another thing we got in England is called Bonfire Night, November the 5th, celebrating burning a guy on a bonfire because he tried to blow up the Houses of Parliament. But when you're a kid, you don't realize that's kind of a sick thing to do. Burning a guy? Yeah, like you, you build a, a, a dummy, like a man, Yeah. because the guy, he was called Guy Fawkes, and he tried to blow up the British Parliament. So they caught him, and that mm -hmm. was his punishment, right? So every year on November the 5th, it's like a big thing. You have a party, you know, uh, cook food, and you have the big bonfire, and you put the guy on top, and you have fireworks and everything. So I wanted to build a big bonfire. And I had this little pony. It's like 10 years, 11 years old. I had an axe and my horse. And I went and I chopped trees down, tied a rope to the trees and dragged the trees on with my horse and built this big bonfire all on my own. And I look back now, I was like, man, that was, that was crazy you were doing that. And, but it just seemed normal. And nobody was like, yeah. you know, parents weren't saying like, wow, that's you, well done. You did something crazy. It was just like normal. So you weren't doing so it for I had recognition. This, I had this focus. Yeah, I had this focus. But just it wasn't like, for recognition. It was. No, it, it wasn't. I just wanted to do it. Did you have a relationship with your, because like, the one part I'm curious about is I know my upbringing, you know, I was born and raised in Iran 10 years and I lived at a refugee camp two years in Germany, the whole war with Iran, Iraq. There was an element of me 
wanting to prove and win yeah. against the odds. They didn't believe I could do it, et cetera, et cetera. What was your relationship like with your mom and what was your relationship like with your dad? Well, I was probably closer to my mom because my mom was there on a daily basis. My dad was in and out. He wasn't really at home that much. He was just kind of just do his own thing. So maybe I was, I don't know, maybe I was trying to get my dad's attention. I'm not really sure, but uh, I just always had that like tenacity. If I'm doing something, I just do it. And I don't think, wow, that must be hard work. Or I don't really think about mm -hmm. it, I just do it. But after my father passed away, uh, I'm sure that was a driving factor to, to succeed. And I spoke to quite a few people that, you know, had some trauma or yeah, loss course, yeah. uh, while they were earlier on, that, that gives them the drive. Maybe you're looking for that recognition, maybe looking for that uh, love or feedback that you didn't get earlier on. I'm not quite sure, but uh, we all got these things in our lives, traumas, incidents, and it's like whether you're going to use it or it's going to affect you in a positive or a negative way. Absolutely. So I took that and I used that fuel, whatever it was. And maybe it was anger there as well. I'm sure there was a lot of anger there that my father died and I didn't feel like anyone really helped me through that or mm -hmm. you know, process, I didn't really process it we didn't really talk about it you know so probably I used all that that energy could go in a negative way if you you know people get into um, alcohol and drugs and addiction and uh, behaviors because of those things do so, you have a lot of friends that did that went a completely different route like uh, yeah I mean I, I, I when I was a teenager I was like off the rails a little bit for a couple of years and I got sent to a detention center which is basically a youth jail facility. Mm -hmm. When I was in there, I was realized like, fuck this, I don't want to be, I'm not, I don't belong here at all. How old were you at this time when you were 18, 18. Oh, you're 18 already. Yeah. Okay. But you know, I'm like, I could see, first of all, I was smarter than the people in there. And then we were in the gym, went to the gym and I was like, I was killing everybody in the gym and I had the best physique and like, wow, this is something I can be good at. I did a little bit of weights before, I did karate and I had this foundation and, um, so yeah, I saw the people around me and um, some of the people I grew up with, they're, they're not here, you know. Some drug overdoses, some suicides. Uh, These are friends. Yeah, and some people still in, in jail or in and out of jail. So that's the, what I grew up around. Um, I had no family backing, really. No education, not much prospects. So I found this thing that was just First of all, I was naturally inclined to it. And secondly, I found it fascinating. Like the process of how you can change your body with the training and the diet and what's the best way to do it, what's the best way to eat. And uh, I got to figure all this stuff out myself. And that was fascinating. For who me. were you in high school? If I was in high school with you, we're 14, 15, 16 yeah. years old. Who, who's doing it? Um, pretty shy, but still in, like I would be in with the group that would be, I don't know, most popular or like, you know, a little bit tough guys that, that people look up. So I'll be in that group, um, but at the same time, I've always been a bit of a loner. So I'd be in the group, but I'd be out of the group. Um, so I always kind of like do my own thing. And even then when we we're like 17, 18, and we used to go to concerts and things like this, I'll be the one that organized everything. I make sure we got the tickets and I'll, and I'll check the transport. And so I was always kind of like a little general. Uh, how old were you, you had your first girlfriend? First experience with a girl, how old were you? Really curious. Like 12 years old. Oh, right? so you started early as well. Yeah. Okay. I mean, my mom, she, uh, we had a few horses, right? So she used to do horse riding lessons. So who does horse riding? Young girls. So I get 
the girls coming to the, the place Good all the strategy. time. Man. <laughs> I know, like so. that strategy. Brilliant. Yeah. So, so your shyness didn't bleed into you knowing that you like girls and you're gonna go up to them and you're gonna, you know. You, no, you, I, I got interested in girls pretty young. Pretty young. Yeah. Okay. And and Birmingham, based on the study I did a little bit on Birmingham. I mean, Birmingham's got reputation with gangs with back in the days with Birmingham I think it's called Birmingham Boys or the Peaky Blinders or some of these yeah, guys you read about yeah they got a series now called Peaky Blinders so that's based on like 1920s Birmingham I think it's put Birmingham on the map a little bit like people watch that series and they're like Birmingham oh, they've never heard of it before or maybe they heard of Birmingham yeah. Alabama you know I asked that because I went to UK I went to London and I spent the day with uh, uh, Katie Hopkins I don't know if you know Katie Hopkins you, you may or may not like her she's like a Nigel Farage type of a yeah. personality and then with a guy named uh, Sean Atwood and then David Courtney. I know uh, Dave Courtney. Dave yeah. Courtney, I think he used to do security for the Cray Twins. Yeah, he used uh, to be involved in a big security company in, uh, in London and, you know, he's known as the celebrity gangster. Celebrity gangster, he, yes. He writes books and everything like yes. that, very entertaining. Which is pretty interesting combination, celebrity gangster. You yeah, know? it's a, what's it, like oxymoron or something? It's an oxymoron <laughs> yeah. because you kind of got to be Yeah, but, but, you know, now he can't be a gangster because... It's, it's very public, so I'm sure he got all the connections and everything already, but... Doesn't yeah. matter today. Did they ever reach out to you? I know, because uh, I think the Cray Twins, they, they died in the late 90s or 2000. When you won, was it kind of like, hey, we're proud that you're coming from UK? Was there any of that, or no? They never reached out to I actually spoke to um, Reggie Cray on the phone uh, one time, which was a bit surreal. Because I read all the books and everything when I was a kid, right? So I'm wondering, yeah. They're famous. Uh, I think the book was called Profession of Violence. Uh, that I read when I was at school. Well, they, you know, they're like mythical characters in, in, in England. And somebody came to the gym, uh, a bodybuilder came to the gym, and they said, we're organizing this contest, um, and uh, the profit from the contest is going to go to boys' boxing clubs in, in the east end of London, mm -hmm. and the craze are, you know, involved in this. And so it's for charity, for the craze charity, the opening boxing clubs or something for kids. Will you come along and, and do something, and do guest posing or something? So I said, sure, man, if it's, you know, if it's going for a good cause. And then uh, this guy at the gym picked up the phone and said, I, I want to speak to Dorian Yates. He's like, hey, who is it? It's Reggie Cray. He's like, uh, no, son, it's Reggie Cray. So, oh, okay, <laughs> give it to me. And I had a little chat with him, and, you know, he's like thanking me for doing that. And if there's anything you need, son, anything at all, you know, you let me know. And so, I was, yeah, it was a little surreal moment. Anything um, you need. Yeah, that can that can go many different ways. How old were you at the time when that phone call was made from Reggie? I was, uh, I think I was Mr. Olympus. So I would have been like thirty or something. Okay, you're already a name. Yeah, you're already yeah that's a why they wanted me to. That's I why they it. wanted me to guest pose. I, I would, got it. You know, I'd bring people in. Oh, I, I was thinking because you were Mr. Britain. I'm thinking no. like after that, hey, come on in, Knight of Champions. No, Mr. Britain's not such a big deal. I mean, I remember I won the British Championship, 1986. Yeah, so I'm British champion. British champion, got the trophy go home, I got this council apartment, which council in England is like, it's from the city, you know, like projects or something. So I got this council flat, I got no carpet on the floor, I don't have a proper bed, I just got a mattress. Mm -hmm. I don't have any car, because every penny that I earn from my work, and it's just going for food, uh, training, catching the bus back and forward, whatever, I don't have any money for a car. So here I am, back in my same apartment, mm -hmm. With my trophy, I just been two, three thousand people screaming, going crazy. I got my trophy, I'm British champion, but still in the same situation. So it took some time to 
to get out of that. Um, someone backed me in opening the gym, opening Temple Gym, because I was British champion. So that was my first leg up. I, I started, you know, then to make an income from from uh, bodybuilding. Is that '87? What year is Temple? '87 uh we opened, yeah, and '88 um, I won the British Championship again, and the whole the overall thing. And that's when I was eligible to turn pro and go compete, which really at that point is, you know, bodybuilding is more international now. At that point, it was really like an American sport. There was not that many successful people outside of the States. Got it. So at this point, Arnold has come here. He has won his from Austria, yeah. but it's still not an international sport. It's still mainly U.S. Weeder is running the whole thing. You come out here. Was your first Mr. O? With Haney, when Haney was was that yeah. the first one where you stood on that the stage? That was him? first Mr. Olympia. Yeah. How was that experience for you standing next to Haney? Well, there's, a, there's another funny story. I was telling my friend the other day, so it comes to mind. So Lee Haney is Mr. Olympia. When I'm when I'm starting out, right. So this is the guy that I'm looking at. He's Mr. Olympia. Plus, he's a family man, and you know he's he's big. I saw him guest pose in England. It's an inspiration, big guy. So I'm a fan, basically. But now I'm going to go compete against him. So I realized I can't be a fan anymore, man. I've got to get a little bit ruthless here. Yeah, it's changed my mind. Right. Maybe I can beat this guy. Maybe I'm better than him. Why not? Sure, he doesn't train as hard as you. So, you know, this process is going on. Until I'm like, got into a, a mind space where, right, I'm, I'm going to go. And I'm going to try and beat this guy. I don't know if I will or if I won't, but I'm going to give him my best shot. And I'm going there with this positive attitude. I'm not going to go there as a fanboy. So I already was in that frame of mind. And, you know, when I compete, I'm very focused, almost to a, like quiet aggressiveness. So there was a guy in New York telling me a story, which I found out later is total bullshit, right? Well, he told me the story. And he's the only guy I knew at this point. I didn't know many people in the American bodybuilding community. So there's this gym owner in New York that was my contact, right? And he knew everybody, knew all the people. He knew I didn't know anybody. So he's telling me stuff. I'm believing him. So he's like, you've got to watch out for Haney on stage. He's a bully. I say, what do you mean? Uh, you know, he'll try to intimidate you. He'll bang into you a little bit. He might tread on your toe or something. You know, he just want to, like, bully you and own the stage, man. I'm like, what? He's not doing that shit to me, man. I'm getting all psyched up and everything, right? <laughs> so I've gone to Mr. Olympia, my first Mr. Olympia, right? I'm psyched. I'm on the stage. And there's a call out. It's just me and Haney, which is unusual. Two guys, right? So it's obvious this is a showdown, right? For first and second. So I start to walk out, and Lee's give me the, you know, friendly smile. I'll give him a stone face. And then I've walked out, and you know, you come and you go in this kind of relaxed, semi relaxed pose. So I went into the semi-relaxed pose, and on purpose, I properly banged my elbow into him. Yeah, and he must have been, what the hell is this crazy guy? <laughs> <laughs> is this on video? Like, I don't know. If you get video over the pre-judging, ah, you might get great. that. Yeah, you might get that. Yeah, so I banged into him, and I did it a couple of times to let, to let him know, you know. And then in the pose down, Lee Haney does this pose where he brings out his arms mm -hmm. like this, and I was behind, and I know he kind of got me out of the corner of his eye, and he clipped me with his with his knuckle. I think he was like, "Okay, have some back," you know. And then uh, it was years and years afterwards. I sat down with him and got a chance. You know, we don't see each other that often. We were at a show, and I got a chance to sit down and, and talk one on one. And I'm like, "Lee, I need to talk to you about something." He's like, "What's that?" Well, I, I kind of need to apologize for something. I said, "What?" 
I said, do you remember on, you know, the, that Olympia and I came and I bang and this? He's like, yeah, I thought you wanted to fight me or something there. He said this. Yeah, so yeah, he yeah. remembers it as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, yeah, well, this happened and, you know, it was a bullshit story and I'm young and I'm psyched up and I'm sorry. Because <laughs> he's just a gentleman. He's a, he's That's a what I hear. Guy, I hear know? he was a very uh, much yeah, of a gentleman. Yeah, he's cool, was a, man. He's, he's <coughs> a real gentleman, so... The, the, the story was totally bu total bullshit, but I, I took it on board. That's a sick story, <laughs> by the way. I, I, love the, I love the fact that the guy from New York told you this. Was he like your agent or manager or no? Just he wanted to be, but it was just a guy that was okay. full of shit, and I didn't I got know it. it. <laughs> but he got yeah, it to you. Yeah, he got to me at that which point. Which is good. How common was that? Because you know when you hear what Arnold psychologically destroys yeah. uh, Lou Ferrigno, and he says, hey, you look like you're six weeks out or four weeks out. You yeah. look like you need some more time. You should have it in a month for him. He's not even in shape yet. He didn't get the timing right. I don't know. You know, the... the, the there's some of that there, obviously, but some of that was for the movie, for the drama, for the camera. Is there any of that? The same like thing is about saying, like, when you get a pump, it's like coming. There's fucking nothing like coming, man. When I'm under that squat bar, it's horrible. It's fucking torture. There's <laughs> nothing like coming. <laughs> Let me tell you, but, you know, you want to sell it to the public? You okay, say that's, that. that's a good one. How much of a, that did you have to prevent while you're getting prepared for competition? Was uh, it like, babe, I can't have sex for the next no, 90 days? No, it wasn't or? anything like that. It was, it was no, like, like boxing or, or something where they're trying to retain that yeah. uh, energy or whatever. There was no real reason to do that. But it happened anyway from just complete exhaustion. Like I was completely exhausted like the last four or five weeks before Mr. Olympia and sex was just like something that was not... My body was just on survival mode, man. It's not interested in trying to procreate and not at all. No thank you, not, no energy. I go to the gym, I put everything and then I come home, I'll be like, literally like this, because you're on a, you know, it's the only sport where you're eating less. You're eating less calories, you're giving your body less fuel, and you're doing more training and harder training. And you, you know, you're trying to get contradictory goal of maximum muscle mass and minimum body fat. It's totally contradictory, and you're trying to balance that, and it's exhausting. Are you able to at all have sex when you're going down to four, five, six percent, three percent body fat? I mean, is there any? There was no. In, there's no inclination. There's no drive. There's no interest. I mean, I literally like get that tired. It's even tiring just to talk sometimes. You don't even want to talk. Yeah, I remember one of the pictures where you, you know, you said at the lowest level was what three and a half percent or maybe three percent because I couldn't because even measure the, it. Yeah, there's uh, skin fold calipers that I was using. And that would get down to like 3.5% about four or five weeks out. And I know I got leaner after that, but it wasn't a registering. Where are you at here? What would you say you are here? I don't know, but this is about four weeks out from Mr. Olympia. So this, if you look at the condition in here, this would probably be superior to most of the guys on the this stage This looks now. ready. This looks competition. This, Dang, is, this is four weeks this out? This is ready. This is ready. But I had to go extra on top of that. <laughs> I always kind of like... I was known as a mass monster, one of the first mass monsters yeah. because of the muscle mass mm -hmm. I carried. But I always competed below what I potentially could do because I wanted to be super shredded. I just didn't want to be big and okay. Say I that wanted, one more time, I you always competed below? Below my potential size because I wanted to be absolutely shredded. I wanted to be you know, dry and shredded as, as well as big, not just big. So. I probably always overdid things. I never underdid things. I always overdid things. Showing this, this is four, four to six weeks out. This yeah. is not. But you, in today's world, that if you went up be, against Curry today, yeah. you'd be ready to be on stage with him competing today. Yeah, there's more separation there. If you look, there's, I got more separation already. 
and that's four weeks out. Yeah. Was it almost annoying to be around you? Like, were you were you getting annoyed by people? Like, I could be, but I kept myself away from them because I didn't want to like. But I'm talking about like family, like you know, because sometimes family, being married. I, you know, I, I have a laugh with my son about this because it was just one incident where I lost it a little bit. <laughs> I used to take my son and, and my nephews to Kentucky Fried Chicken or McDonald's on a weekend, and I'd just have a black coffee, and it, it didn't bother me, right? It didn't bother me. But my son had this, like, ice popsicle, lollipop, whatever you call it here in the States, you know? So he got this thing, and it's got a bit of chocolate on it. It's got these little sprinkles on, and then it's got colors. And so we're watching TV together, and he's like... <laughs> and he's, like, just savoring this thing for so long it's just like it just drove me crazy and they're like son so like, what say please take that in the kitchen and eat it man <laughs> take it in the kitchen and eat it please to that point yeah at that one point i just lost it a little bit so we, we laugh about that now you know but, but it's just one incident so, so I was, for the most part you're pretty calm. you know i was like look i'm choosing to do this yeah i'm choosing to do this i'm choosing to put my body through this so it's not fair for me to take out any kind of like frustrations uh, or you know moods out on, on other people so I pretty isolate myself when I was at home and uh, most of the time I was cool just you know just keep it to myself what is it like being married to a type a competitor you're not in the one percent category you're not in the one percent of one percent category you're in the one percent of one percent of one percent of one percent seven billion people living in the world there's only yeah. one Mr. Olympia there's a lot of people that are trying to be bodybuilders what is it to be married to that guy who is like a scientist like you that's paying attention to detail saying this is four weeks out and I still want to go lower? Uh, how was that part? Was it, was it difficult? Was it annoying? Was it like, you know... For my wife? For any, yeah, for your wife being around you. Um, I'm married as well. I'm asking yeah. it because this is... Uh, well, the thing is, um, we met around about the time that I just started training and uh, not planned at all. We, we had a child, Lewis. so uh, Lewis together. So Debbie, who was my wife, she's seen the whole thing, right? And, I, and at first she didn't understand it. Nobody understood it. What the hell are you doing? And why are you eating like a robot every two and a half and three hours and doing this? And what's this all about, right? But fortunately, I was successful very quickly. After a year and a half training, I went to compete in a novice contest. Absolutely, like, I didn't know at the time. I just thought, this is where I need to be. But now I look back, it's like, there's no comparison. I won the contest so easily. Then I had, like, judges and officials. There was one guy, Ron Davis, who was, um, he used to judge at the Mr. Olympia. And he was the head of the Federation in England. And he was there, and he was, Darian, nice to, where are you from? I'm like, from Birmingham. What are you doing in the novice class? Well, I'm a novice. This is my first contest, so well, you should be in the heavyweight class. No, no, no. I'm not. I'm not good enough for that yet. <laughs> it's not good enough. He started laughing like he's not good enough. Wow, kid, you're the best heavyweight we've seen in this country. I'm like, no, about this guy and this guy. Surely they're better than me. No. So we want you to come and compete in the World Games like next week on the British team as a heavyweight and this is the world championship this next is a, week yeah the world championship and I didn't want to go because I knew I wasn't ready to win that yet and I'm what's the point of going if I'm not ready to win hmm. that was my whole mentality yeah, from the course. start but they kind of persuaded me to go on the team so I went and then I got seventh place there and, and 13 guys and these were like 
the best amateurs in the world How old are you going to turn pro. Um, 23. 23. 23. So I started training properly when I was 21, 23. You know, the, the massive recognition at the, at the first show, I got my first magazine article. I'm going to the, the, the world championship and get seventh place there after training a year and a half. At 13. So people around me could recognize, oh, this is not a waste of time now. This guy is, you know, it's, so not, that's a, when it's not a pipe dream. It's like Debbie then understood what I was doing okay. and got behind me fully. And she always was behind me and had great faith in what I was doing. And uh, when I went to my first pro show, which was in Night of Champions in New York, and I got second place there, which was $7,000. That was my pro earnings, $7,000. And then um, Vince McMahon from WWE, he started a bodybuilding federation. And Tom Platts, who was my hero, one of my heroes, mm -hmm. was like repping, you know? He was the guy that was putting this thing together. And they contacted me because they liked my look, that it was very rugged and, you know, had a different look, because they were looking for like looks, like they got with the wrestlers and different personalities, mm -hmm. different looks, mm -hmm. and I had this look that was mean. And they flew me out there to Connecticut, where the headquarters is, and gave me a whole tour around and had a meeting with uh, uh, Vince McMahon's wife. And they offered me something like 170 grand a year to go and be with that federation. That's money at that time. You I had nothing. Yeah, I had nothing. Crazy. So I gone home to my wife and I said, look, they offered me this. If I take this, we can get a house. We can do this. We can do that. I mean, we're living in, still in a council place, man. I'm, I'm, I'm turned pro, but I'm still living in the ghetto, right? Not much money. I got $7,000. And much to her credit, she said, I'm, I'm out of this. So I got nothing to say about this. This is entirely your decision to make. So you need to, you know, you need to make the decision. Why did she say that? What's, what's her reasoning for giving it to you? Because if she had have said, do it, let's take the money, I probably would have maybe thought, let's do it. I mean, she'd been behind me all this time. The family needs something, Respect. man. You know? Uh, you know, the family's been behind me and now I got this, maybe I should do it for the family. But she said, no, no you got to figure this out. And then I was like, you know what? I, re I believe in myself. And the Olympia is the Olympia. And I got a feeling, I got a bad feeling about this wrestling federation. Because the one thing that I was adamant about when I went there, I was like, I'm not a performer. I'm not, you know, if this is going to be like the wrestling, where it's like you're a character and the winner's already kind of chosen, mm -hmm. I, I'm not in for that. I'm, 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 I'm an, I want to compete. I'm an athlete, I'm a sports person, I want to compete. I want to compete against the best and it's got to be a competition. They assured me it would be like that, but I had my doubts. And then, you know, Mr. Olympia is everybody builder's dream. Mm -hmm. So I'd have to give up on that dream to go with the wrestling federation. So uh, I made a tough decision and I said, I'm going to turn down this money because I got faith in myself and I will get that money and more if I stick to this path and I win Mr. Olympia. So I had to call Tom Platts and say no to Tom Platts, which And was, this is somebody you admire. Uh, it's like, I, I, such a fan of Tom Platts. I remember the first time I met him and I must've had to like, cause it happens to me and I say to people, don't worry, man. It happened to me when I was a kid. Cause they come to me and they're like, I, I, I got a thousand questions for you, but I don't know what to say now. I say, listen, don't worry, man. It happened to me, but you know, when I was a, mm. so I know how you feel. Yeah. I was a fan. I met Tom Platts, I had a thousand questions and I was like, uh, hello. Uh, that was it, you know. I think Dorian Yates 
to me is one of the all-time great, greatest spiders that ever existed. So I had to call Tom Platts and say, Tom, I thought this through and I'm going to have to decline the offer. I, I think I can be Mr. Olympia and I'm going to keep on this path. And Tom's never been Mr. Olympia. He, no. he had the quads, but he never won Mr. Olympia. No, he didn't. He got second or third, I think, in 81, which was controversial because Franco Colombo won that with still a very badly damaged leg from the injury he got in World's Strongest Man. Mm -hmm. So that was probably one of the most controversial Mr. Olympias along with the 1980 that Arnold won in Australia. The one that uh, when he got on stage, you know, a lot of experts said he didn't look like he was ready to win the whole thing. No, I don't know. I mean, I look at pictures and it's uh, not a lot of video around because I think Arnold bought it all up. So you, you can't watch it anymore. <laughs> But you can see some pictures, and Arnold definitely was not at his best, but still Arnold is an impressive on stage. He's a big man. He's, he's tall and he's wide and make the other guys look a little bit small. So I don't know if he should have won or not. I mean, I can't really say I wasn't there. Do you think a guy like that could win today? Because right now it's what? You said 212 class. You said two, yeah. 212, right? And he was 225 at Maybe 235. Maybe yeah, 235 at his best, yeah. But at six two and a half, that's That's yeah, skinny but, compared uh, to today. But he was still head and shoulders the best at the time yeah. with what was available as far as training knowledge mm -hmm. and let's be honest pharmaceuticals and so on that, that were used so if you took Arnold and you put him into days or you know the 90s or whatever and with a better training knowledge we have and more pharmaceuticals that we were using and so on he, he would have been bigger so yeah that's a good point I mean he's great genetically Arnold's like specimen you know, you've got these pecs and biceps still and he's like 70 something years old um whether his legs and back would be up to today's standard i don't know there was the, the chest that he had he looked like he needs it's to wear still a bra like, half the uh, time, you know i he, mean still no one's got pecs like that yeah I mean, it's just phenomenal pecs and biceps is like still can't he, be matched he could have gone to vegas and been a stripper yeah you, with those pecs <laughs> that he had but that's a whole. Different. By the way, your relationship with Arnold, how was how was that with the two of you guys? Because you we know, don't, again, we don't really have much of a relationship. Um, I've never, I haven't really spoken to Arnold that much. Have you guys ever had a sit down? Ever had no, a conversation? No, we never had a sit down. Ever. Never had a sit down. And um, I've never. All other bodybuilders idolize Arnold, and they seek him out because maybe he can do something for them or whatever. Um, I never did that. I'm, I'm my own man, so I don't go to try to kiss anyone's ass. But you, you had a reaction like that to Platts. How come you didn't have that to him? Because, because Arnold was not really from my era. He was from the 70s, and I, you know, I grew up and started bodybuilding okay. in the 80s. So I was looking at the current guys, which was Mensa and, and Platts, and maybe also something about Arnold's personality that didn't really jive with me. Was Arthur Jones, the founder of Nautilus, I think at one point they were doing yeah. 400 million a year, was he an Arnold fan? Uh, I don't really know. I know Arnold went out there to train. They had a facility out there in, in Florida and uh, I think Arthur Jones said he didn't, he didn't like it. That's why it I asked the question hard, because you know? I wonder, because Arthur Jones's personality seems like your personality a little bit. I don't know if it is I, or I, not, I, uh, could be, I could be wrong. I don't know too much about personality, but I read all his books and it just resonated with me. Like, this is logic, man. He's a this, very makes, this makes sense. Right. First of all, it makes sense. Second, let me do it in practice and see what happens. So it could make great sense, but if I do it and it doesn't work, then what's it worth? It's not worth nothing, right? So I, I tried it and I experimented and I have kept logs 
I, I've got every single workout that I ever did from 1983 to 1997 written down. Come on. Every single workout. 1983 to 97, I wrote down every single workout and there's notes underneath. How much weights did I use? What exercise? How many reps did I do? And then every month I would do a, uh, a check. I would set goals for the next month. So now I can bench press 300 pounds for eight reps. Next month, I want to be 310. So I would set goals that were realistic, Love yeah? That. But every month, if they all add up at the end of the year, you got a big thing, right? So it was all very calculated and planned and, and strategized, like a general. Like when I was a kid, when we used to go to concerts, I'd be the one that, you know, get the train tickets and the, and the, and the concert tickets and you know, organize everything. All the guys would just turn up and go along, like, but I'd be the one doing the planning and strategizing. So that's what I was doing. So I could analyze what I was doing. Okay, I'm, I'm training three days a week and this is happening. I'm training four days a week, analyze, analyze what happens. I, I noted <coughs> that if I did increase the volume and the frequency of the workouts, my progress kind of came to a stop. And when I did a little bit less, very intense, really hard training, but less. Shorter workouts, less frequently, I start growing again. And I, I tell people often that they're, they're stuck, they're stuck in a gym. First thing you need to do, take a week off. Take a week off, come back to a more abbreviated program and come talk to me. Darren, I, I took a week off, guess what happened when I came back? I was stronger. Oh no shit, man. Because your body was just like, needed the break. You, you're, you're overtrained, you need a rest, come back, restored, rebuild, you're stronger. Stop overtraining. How, how long were you in the gym? Like, what, what's because you know these misconceptions. Hour maximum. Maximum. Hour, maximum, maximum. And were you a big cardio or not really? Uh, I used to do cardio like a couple of times a week in the off season, just to keep some cardio conditioning, like thirty minutes, two times a week. Oh, but nothing crazy. Nothing crazy. Okay. But getting ready for a contest, I do a lot more. But it was low intensity cardio, so it was just basically calorie burning. So I'd do forty-five minutes in the morning mm -hmm. on a stationary bike moderate heart rate like 115, 120. And in the evening I'd do 45 minutes uh, power walking, fast walking. So I had a dog, I had a boxer, yeah? He was a real mm -hmm. beefed up, mm -hmm. chunky boxer. He used to walk with me for a contest. He would also lift weights he, with you? He didn't want to lift weights, but he'd get, he'd get ripped before a contest because <laughs> he had to walk with me every evening. I got it. <laughs> yeah, he lost weight. I got it. I so got we'd it. go up and down together. You know, Dorian, I've heard a lot of different stories about Joe Weider. You know, if you read the book Total Recall, and Arnold talks about when he first came to the States, and he thought the headquarters of Weider was massive. And he's like, wait a minute, I thought this was a massive building. He says, well, you know, this is the impression that we're something yeah. one day we're going to be, yeah. right? W what stories do you have with Joe Weider yourself? Well, it was when, when I came on the scene in the 90s, they had a big office in Woodland Hills with, I don't know how many employees, like, 50, 60 employees in the magazine place there, covered with uh, American Western art and everything. It was, it was impressive. Um, so I was just recalling <coughs> one of my visits to the office when I went there, because if I was in town, Joe would always invite me to the office, so we'd go for lunch together. He always liked to be, mm. spend some time with the, with the champions, as he says. So the champions are all my friends, are all my family. So <coughs> one day I went and I, went into his office and chatting away. And for some reason, he starts showing me pictures of him when he was young, when he used to train and bodybuild. And I'm thinking, well, it's not very impressive. I know he didn't have a great physique, so. But anyway, I'm like, yeah, whatever, I'm not saying too much. Then he pulls out one picture 
it's like a Mos Mosca or something like this, and it was thick and round, and I'm like, wow, Joe, that picture, wow, I've never seen that one before, it looked great there. So we're chatting away, and afterwards I leave the office, and I bump into Peter McGough, who's the editor of Flex and Muscle and Fitness, and he's from UK, and we've been friends for years. So he's like, how did it go with Joe? I said, yeah, it's okay, man, you know, we're chatting away, and uh, wow, man. He showed me this picture that i never seen before when I was younger, and it's actually really big and thick and round, and so Peter says to me, oh, was it this picture, like this, like this pose? Yeah, exactly, that's the one, man. He's like, that's not Joe's body. That's the body of Clancy Ross, who was a, whatever, Mr. America or something in the 50s, and Joe's, like, superimposed his head on top of the body, <laughs> which I found fascinating because I'd probably be looking at Joe and thinking, wow, look at this guy with, a, with his huge company and all his millions and everything, that's amazing. But it, it's almost that I felt like he would have given her up just to be Mr. Olympia. Like wow. he really wanted to be a bodybuilder and he had a, almost like a childlike passion for bodybuilding. Um, so yeah, people say he was a cold businessman. He was, he was a businessman. So if he didn't have to pay you nothing, he wouldn't pay you, right? So he was a businessman, he wanted to make maximum return. But he had a genuine love for bodybuilding. He wasn't there just to exploit it. He did, he did love the, the sport. You felt that when you I were I felt around. that, yeah, like almost like a childlike. I mean, he used to come to photo shoots and supervise a photo shoot with me and a guy's in his late 70s. And I say to him, Joe, what are you doing here? He said, what do you mean what am I doing here? I said, well, you don't need to do this. Why are you here, man? If I was you, I'd be like in the Bahamas. I'd be sitting on a beach or something. I'd be doing something. And he's like, look, this is my passion. This is what I love doing. And if I don't do this, what am I going to do? Curl up and die? So this, this is what I You've got to respect that. Part. Yeah. But it's so, amazing how he put the picture just for you. Was it a way for you to have the level of respect that, wow, at one point he also had a physique? No, I, I don't think he made that picture for me. I think it was already... Shared you know, with others. Peter McGough already knew about it. God. So obviously he'd, already, he'd shown it to other people and they kind of worked it out. That You're not going to say anything to Joe, though. He's the boss, right? So, uh, yeah, it just showed me that, like, often in life, people have something. Mm-hmm but the grass is always greener on the other side. You always want something else. You so. want what you can have. Yeah. What, what was your favorite magazine to read, by the way? Muscle Mag, I remember Flex, I remember Muscular Development, I remember Muscle and Fitness, I remember Muscle Media 2000. Was yeah. it for, which one was the one you, you liked the most? Well, I had such a collection of magazines which got destroyed. I had a flood uh, in my basement one time and just destroyed all my magazines. I had the biggest collection because I collected everyone, everyone everything that was published, every magazine, every book. Mm. When I started lifting to when I finished, I, I had it, everything. And then I had, people gave me stuff. Oh, my brother, my older brother's got these old magazines. So one guy gave me all these little Iron Man. If you remember these very small Iron Man That's magazines. It's really old school and it was, it was very independent and almost like the opposite to Weida, where Weida took bodybuilding and created this illusion. As you say, Arnold went there and expected this big building and it was, it was very small. The same thing, he, he created this illusion of bodybuilding where you're on the beach with a protein shake and the hot girls mm -hmm. and it's like mm -hmm. as if it's a lifestyle that we're all doing here. 
how are you doing that? You got no money. There's no pro there's no money in bodybuilding. So it's like an illusion. He was making bodybuilding like cool and trendy and fashionable and desirable, where Iron Man was a bit more like old school and more basic and practical advice, um, because of the training advice you got, in, got from Joe Weider was. Arnold's 20 sets six times a week and so on. That does, that didn't work. So. so one was the logic, one was the dream, the yeah, possibility, yeah. the what if. So I, I, I liked all. I liked the old Ironmans just for the practical information mm -hmm. in there. And um, <coughs> Muscle Builder, as it was called, later became Muscle and Fitness. There was no Flex magazine. It was Muscle Builder was the first Weeder magazine I saw. And that had Robbie Robinson on the front, who I just... Actually, we had breakfast together when I was out in L.A. in his mid-70s and still in great shape. The peak on his biceps never made sense to me. Right, yeah. speak on it, but just like muscle on top of muscles, like a heel on top of it, it just yeah, made no sense when you were looking at that. Very impressive. Very that's, impressive. That's, you know, yeah. that's genetic. It's not some kind of training you can do for yeah. that. It's just the shape you're, you're born with. So, yeah, it was fascinating to see somebody that was so successful, but you could still see they would love to be something else. But, you know... It's something you can't buy. Yeah, you can't you, buy a genetics that is going to make so you wild. into a great bodybuilder. Any any experience you had with Bill Phillips with Muscle Media 2000? No, never. Never, never with met yeah, him, yes, no. like But I'm, I'm familiar with the magazine. I used to read it. I used to enjoy it. Yeah. I, I thought it was a very good magazine. I thought somebody yeah. like you would have liked it because it was actually... They had some scientific, scientific stuff in there. Yeah, yeah. He, he, would, he would do some yeah. stuff that was pretty impressive. Yeah, I read all those magazines. I mean, there probably isn't a magazine published between 83 and 87 that I haven't read. I got a friend of mine who's about my age in, in Birmingham. He runs a gym there. So we've known each other since I started competing. And he has this thing where he'll take a picture of a physique without the head and send it to me and see if I can get it. And, you know, not guys from the Olympia that would be obvious, like uh, guys from Mr. America or something like that. And I don't think he's ever got me like I didn't know who it was. Really? I, I, I read so many magazines, like I know everybody. So you're also there. historian of the game as well. Yeah, historian and Super analyzer yeah. and historian of physiques and training methods. Anything that could be helpful. The, I, how I, much did you push, by the way? What, if, what, you know, this whole thing about pushing weights. What, what was your max on bench, on biceps, on squats? What, what were you... I don't know, man, because I never did a max. Like, as in a single. Yeah. I can tell you what I did for working sets, which would be like eight reps. Eight reps. Um, bench like 500 okay. for uh, eight reps. Um, That's bent sick. Yeah, bent over rows was like 450 or something I was okay. using on there. Um, squats I stopped doing, like when I was an amateur, I stopped doing heavy like barbell squats because I had an injury. I use mainly machines, so you know, I don't even know how much is on the leg press, but we had a leg press and then, you know, you got the bars coming out on the mm -hmm. side. Mm -hmm. So we had an extension bar, so we had one Make, somebody made it where it fits into the hole then it extends out again so you can put more plates on and then a bar on the top to put more plates on there so I don't know leg press is probably like 1500 uh, deadlifts I never went heavy on deadlifts I only did the kind of light you know 4 50 500 max at the end of a back workout so yeah, I was strong I was shoulder pressing 160 dumbbells for, for delts 120 pound dumbbell flies um the way I look at it, the more weight you lift in strict form for a number of reps correlates to how big the muscles are. If you want to get bigger, you've got to get stronger. So that's why I always kept the, the records and everything, so I had my targets to achieve. Uh, for you, you're super competitive. It's very obvious you're very, very competitive, yeah. right? You know, I talked to Kobe, 
and I asked Kobe versus Jordan, right? There's a couple different differences between those two guys. Kobe wanted to compete purely basketball. Yeah. He could care less about ping pong, about this, about that, about, the, about all this other stuff. Yes. Jordan wanted to beat you in everything, yeah. right? He's kind of like, I want to do this, I want to do that. Yeah. W- was your level of competition in one topic that intrigued you the most and you were not interested in everything else? Is that kind of more absolute, your personality? Absolute tunnel vision, yeah. And I didn't have any ambitions to use that as a springboard to something else. It, it, in itself was its goal, where Arnold was using bodybuilding to get into movies and then into politics and all this kind of stuff, which I have zero, zero interest in. Zero. So what was your end game? Like, you're like, I'm going to win six Mr. Olympia so I can one day? Well, you know, hopefully change the trajectory of my life, give me some security. And uh, I did think I wanted to get into the gym business, that that's what I wanted to do. Did or didn't? I did. I thought I did, but I realized I I didn't. And it's not a great business to get into. Mm -hmm. Um, So my main business now is uh, sports nutrition. I have DY nutrition. So we're doing sports nutrition, bodybuilding nutrition. And we're now looking to go to get some products for for wellness and so on because if I'm interested in something I will devour the material if I'm not I I just can't learn so I need to be interested I'm very interested in now in wellness and how nutrition and supplementation can affect health and longevity and also the the mental aspect of how you affect your health with your thoughts and so on so we're going to bring products more out along that line um, looking at CBD, I've been a big supporter of cannabis for uh, decades before it was even, you know, on the radar and of being fashionable and accepted almost now. When did you become a supporter of it? Uh, well, I've been a kind of occasional smoker of cannabis since I was a teenager. Um, but I just didn't consider it a recreational thing, like having a beer or a wine mm-hmm. or something to relax. Mm-hmm. And I thought it's probably not that great for you. But at some point after I retired, I started looking for information and finding information uh, about cannabis. And I found out about Rick Simpson that was cu- cured his own cancer and was curing a lot of people, multiple people with mm-hmm. cancer with a cannabis extract. And then I found a guy called uh, Robert Malamade, Dr. Malamade, uh, who's a leading researcher on- um, Is that the UCLA guy or? I th- I'm not sure what university is from, but his speciality, his field that he specializes in is free radicals and how free radicals affect cells and aging and everything like this. And this guy is like huge advocate of cannabis. And that's his field, his speciality. And it's like, there's nothing that works like cannabis for, um, you know, for killing the free radicals and, and protecting the cells. Do, do you read uh, only pro-arguments or you also read anti-arguments? Of I read anti-arguments, yeah, if, if there's one that, that makes any sense. Has anything ever made sense to you? If there's any, ever been an argument where you're like, you know, like some of the ones th- they I say. I think uh, it's not a good idea for somebody that's very young, like 15, 16, 17, to be consuming any kind of like mind-altering substance because your brain is still developing. So there may be some vulnerability there at an early age, if you're using cannabis or any other kind of, even alcohol and other substances at that age, I wouldn't probably recommend it. There may be some risk. Um, I think if you're susceptible in the family to having schizophrenia and stuff. Well, I run a headliner camp in Costa Rica, ayahuasca camp, 
And we have a disclaimer, if you have any history of um, schizophrenia or any kind of mental illness in your family, you're not allowed to do it because you're vulnerable. You know, it could be this, something that tips the, the balance. So there may be some argument there. I'm not sure if, uh, if it does influence that or not. But some people say that, that it might in young people only. Um, so there may be a negative there. Look, I, I've come to realize nothing in life is black or white. Nothing is all good, nothing is all bad. So you might have a substance like cannabis that's very beneficial, but in some circumstances it might be a negative. You know, if you're gonna overuse it or use it habitually, um, you're not gonna get a lot of things done. So even though I'm a cannabis user, I'm a disciplined user. I'm old enough to be disciplined, mm -hmm. I'm, not, I'm not a kid, right? So I'll use it when it's appropriate. I never smoke before, um, if I'm doing business or if I'm doing appearances or if I'm going to work in a gym, I, I never do that. I do it when I'm, when I'm out in the nature or it's time for me to relax. Yeah, I know you, you also say that uh, every once in a while you take a two-week break just to yeah, I take Yeah, I control. take a, a month break actually. A month break. Um, which I time when I do my Alaska camps because anyway you have to go on a specific diet and clean out to do the camp, you're not allowed to drink. Pre. Well, it's not recommended. Pre, during, and afterwards. I got it. So it's probably like three or four weeks trip uh, at a time, and it, it's good to exercise discipline with with anything. Did you I smoke think. while you were competing? Were you? Was it part of your routine or not? It was really? not a regular thing, but it was an occasional thing. Just like having a glass of wine was an occasion. I didn't have it every night. Maybe on the weekend I'll have a glass of wine. At what point did you start uh, uh, experiencing with steroids and, and additional drugs? Uh, before my first competition because I knew the guys I was competing against were using steroids, Everybody so I'm was. like, this is, you know, this is, uh, this is part of the game, right? And if you're gonna compete without steroids, you're gonna be at a great disadvantage. Not impossible, maybe, if you're genetically much more gifted than the other guys. Well, actually, my first competition uh, wasn't with the Federation, it was a local competition, Mr. Birmingham, and I won that while I was natural. And the, the guy that placed second and third, I, you know, I knew them. So I knew they were using steroids, and I was still able to beat them, and I dieted for like a week. Natural. Uh, yeah, and natural. But when I went to the Federation and I knew it was a different standard, then um, I, I started about 12 weeks before the competition. What you start off, what was the first experience? Uh, so, so little to what people use now, but still I f it was dramatic because it was the first time I ever touched anything. Uh, first thing I ever took was Dynable, Okay. 20 milligrams a day of Dynaball. I took that for six weeks and then I switched over to prima, one Primaball in shot a week and a little bit of Anabar, like 15 milligrams or something. That's kind of like bikini girls use that now. And know? Primo is like pre-competition stuff. Yeah. Primo is not to really get you No, that was when I was, you know, yeah. I did a little bit to build up and then, then I came down with a diet. Got it. Uh, and I was in pretty good shape. I died for like seven weeks or something. When did you really, ex because even when you went against Lee Haney, when you get on, when you got yeah. on stage and you look at you, you look good. Yeah. You look like this guy can win, but you took it to a whole different level. So at what point did you kind of uh, take your game up and experience with well, different the, things? Well, the next level, I was just using steroids up to that point. So the next level was growth hormone, which was very expensive and not that available. But now I got second in the Mr. Olympia. So now I got income and I got contacts and I decided let's, let's try a growth hormone. I'm sure that my competitors are already using it or some of them. Um, so I started with that and that like enabled me to go to another level over the next few years.
what was the what, what what was the reaction you would get? Was there different things when you took this? You felt like this. You know, I had the whole thing with temper, acne, yeah. react. You know, was there anything you're like? But when I use this, I got to be careful because my fuse gets shorter. When I use this, I feel like I can take over the world. When I use yeah, this, yeah, I had that aggression, but most of the time it didn't spill out because I used a, I used most of it in the gym, and. Um, I wasn't in a lot of situations where it could be triggered. Like a lot of guys at the gym, they used to work security at the nightclubs and so mm -hmm. on. I did that very earlier on. But when I started competing and then I got the gym, I didn't need to do that and I didn't want to do it anymore. Um, so I was not going, you know, I was not going out to bars or nightclubs where somebody might piss you off or, you know. So I kept myself kind of a bit isolated and I did feel aggression, but it was like a controlled aggression that I could use for the workouts. Um, as far as side effects, water retention, acne, some of my I did get blood checks and some of them were out of the normal range. It was, my doctor told me, and you're not dying yet, but you know, it's not a healthy thing to, <laughs> to keep you doing this. You're not dying. Yeah, you're not dying, you know, it's not, it's not perfect, but your body's under stress. Well, this is your profession and you're earning good money. So my advice to you is do this and get in and get out. Don't do it for too long. How long did you stay at the peak of uh, experiencing with uh, steroids? Basically, my, my Mr. Olympia reign, which was, was six years. Yeah. My, I think my intake while I was an amateur was, it was really kind of moderate. But then I got second in the Mr. Olympia. What if I can go mm. another level? Uh, you, know, that's, uh, you know, now it's, it's worth any potential risks, maybe. What is the level of usage then versus today for somebody that's competing? Yeah, today, in today is much more. Is it twice as much, 50% oh, yeah, more? Two or three more, times as much. Two or three times more. Two or three more. times as much, yeah. So if you're competing in today's times with what's accessible today, how would you have been the same size? Or is there a limit to your size? Or would you have to be a, even well, bigger Well, I think, than you know, there, there's a, a point where it's beneficial up to a, you know, a bell curve. And then mm -hmm. it's, it's not. And I think... Possibly one of the reasons where the guys are not getting into shape now or having trouble getting into shape is because they're using a lot of stuff and it's hard. They don't show the, the details and the separation. They, they, they have the volume, but they don't have the details and the separation. And I'm not sure exactly what that is because I'm not really au fait with everything that everyone's like using now. Mm -hmm. I do help some people and I do train them. And everyone that comes to train with me is surprised because they think Dorian Yates He's the guy, you know, the, the growth hormone guy, the, the, the steroid, the insulin, he's so fucking big, he must have been mm -hmm. using 10 times more than everybody else. Uh, you know, we're all using pretty much the same thing. The thing that was different was my, was my approach and my training. That's the difference. Were you guys all talking about what you're using or no? A little bit, yeah, a little okay, bit. So yeah. everybody's pretty open about yeah, it. Yeah, no. I mean, most of the guys we're using, <laughs> I, I use a growth hormone a day when we're competing. We all like talk and, you know, that was pretty much an average, it seemed. So, I'm, you know pretty much new. Now people use, uh, people that don't even compete using a lot of steroids. Well, back then it was mainly, mostly people that competed. There'll be a few guys in the gym that take a little stuff because, you know, whatever, they wanted to look big, but the majority of people were competing and a lot of people wanted to compete then. Now you go to the gym and look how many people want to compete in the gym, there will be nobody or one guy mm. maybe. Then it's like all the guys mm -hmm. in my gym, they all wanted to compete. That was the thing. Everyone wanted to do it. It was like the peak of, of interest, which has now declined. And would, would, would the 18-year-old today, Doran Yates, have gone the same route with all these different options? Wow. Good question. Um, 
Probably, but could Dorian Yates be the shadow now in this day and age where the industry is like very much on social media? Yeah. So it, it would be hard because people use social media now to promote themselves, to promote their business, to, to make an income. In fact, some of the biggest earners in a sport, they never compete. Mm -hmm. they're, they're just on social mm -hmm. media and they, they get millions of followers and from that they capitalize on that and they make an income and they think, fuck it, I don't even need to go through all that shit and compete. I'm not, you know, I got a business anyway. Uh, in my day, you needed to compete and you need to be successful on a high level in order to get yourself in a magazine which gives you exposure and gives you publicity and then you get income. Was anybody even making money during your era? I mean, I, I heard Sean Ray was good with money, right? For your first place, so you're obviously making money because yeah. you're getting the sponsorships. But even after second, third place, I mean, the, the money is like 50 grand, 40 grand, yeah. 20 grand. How are people making money? Do they all have full-time careers? No, they, uh, I think maybe top six or top 10 in the Mr. Olympia can make a career, make an income solely from bodybuilding. Because you haven't just got the prize money. You've got sponsorship deals, which if you're a top placer, would probably be more than your prize money on, a, on an annual basis. And then you've got appearance fees, guest posing, seminars, etc. So people are making extra mm -hmm. income from that. Mm -hmm. So it's not just from the prize money, but still compared to other sports, it's, I mean, it's chump change, right? Yeah, I think right now we were talking about it. $400,000 right now, first yeah. place is what they paid during your time. Well, that's you one guy. That's one guy. Yeah, one and then guy. it goes down. Uh, it goes down rapidly. Real quick. Yeah, yeah. it goes down from a $400,000 to, I don't know what, the, I know during your time it was between $100,000 to $150,000 yeah. when you were yeah. winning. So, you know, when you, you, you know how uh, uh, women can see another woman and they can say, oh, she got a nose job. And we were like oblivious to it. We're like, oh, yeah, she's okay. Yeah, my wife does that all the time. Yeah, she's <laughs> like, like oh, I don't know. She's on Botox. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, she got her, what do you call yeah. it, tummy tuck. Well, yeah. like, I have no idea, Absolutely, right? Absolutely, yeah. But you watch NBA players, or you, I don't know if you watch NBA, you watch a certain sport. Can you look and say, that guy's on something? When you see somebody, can you pretty much say somebody's on uh, uh, using something or not? I can't say 100%. Okay. But I could have my suspicions, especially if they change quite quickly. I've seen a lot of fighters that I'm like, all right, you know, you just put on like 10, 15 pounds of muscle in the last year. That's no way you're doing that without using something. And there's money, there's money here, man. People, you know, we're, we're talking about high level sports highly, highly driven people. They're not gonna miss anything that's gonna help them, man. So if they can do it and they can get away with it, uh, mostly they're doing it. Yeah. Mostly they're doing yeah. it. What do you look for? Do you look for jaw? Do you look for vascularity? Do you look for sudden size increase? Are yeah, if somebody makes a big increase over a year, then that's, that's a telltale sign because some people can be muscular, naturally muscular anyway. Um, some people have done well in bodybuilding being natural. I mean, Ronnie Coleman, I believe, uh, who was eight times Mr. Olympia after me, I believe he got as high as uh, world championship, maybe even competing in Mr. Olympia by being, with being natural. Wow. Yeah, I believe so. If you look at his physique when he's in the Mr. Olympia in 1992, when I won the first one, compared to when he was winning, I, it's, it's huge. and. I could believe that there's some people that are just very genetically gifted. I want to say 1992. He placed 13th or something like that. He yeah, was he was in up the there, top man. 10. Yeah, he was. Uh, yeah, he was in the top 10. He kind of he had the skinny big body. It was different than 
Paul Delette's physique because you know Paul Delette had a different kind of a body than yeah. me, although I'm, I'm just comparing them both yeah. because they had a, a, a certain uh, length to themselves but uh, for you when, you, when you think about bodybuilding, who are your uh, uh, Mount Rushmore? Who do you put up there as the greatest body, bodybuilders of all time? How, put yourself out there. Who would you see at the top five in your eyes? Um, Sergio. Olivia. Yeah, Sergio Olivia. They're, they're just people that stand out to wow. be like, wow, this is Mr. Olympia yeah. at the time. I mean, it's like something from another planet at that time, the late 60s, right? Amazing. Sergio Olivia had the famous pose, you know, the whole... Yeah, very few people can do that with their arms over head pose. Make it look good. Yeah. Make it look good. He could do that and you couldn't believe it. Sergio Olivia, Arnold, Lee Haney, Ronnie Coleman, and myself. I know you told me not to put myself in there, but... That'd be your top five? It's like Mr. Olympia should be a standout. It's like not a little bit better than the other guys. Standout. And it should be a guy of, of some stature, mm -hmm. I, I think. A little guy, I find it hard to, to see a little guy as being Mr. Olympia. You talk about that a lot. Why is that? What, what's, when you say little guy, what is little guy to you? You're talking like 5'8 and under. Is that kind of to you, little guy? Like yeah, I mean, you, Mr. Olympia, you're talking about the best bodybuilder in the world. And even if you showed to a member of the general public a small guy, they'd be like, really? Is, you know, I expect the guy to be mm -hmm. like... Of a, impressive and huge stature so those are the guys that stand out to me to be like they were really head and shoulders above the competition at the time i don't say that i was head and shoulders above the competition but you know six years in a row uh, but my competition was very intense i mean arnold didn't really have i think some mr olympia is only arnold and other mr olympia is some nobody that can come close to him Lee Haney as well won my eight Mr. Olympias, but he didn't really have intense competition. Mm -hmm. he, he knew if he came in pretty good shape, it was his. It was, you know, it was head and shoulders above everybody. And Ronnie was very hard to beat as well. He, Jay Cutler did beat him in the end, but it, Ronnie was in a decline from injuries at that point. What do you think about Sergio Nubre's physique? To me, he had he was yeah. His Sergio Nubre looked like a panther or something. I mean, real quality yeah, to his was muscles. Interesting physique. To yeah, me. and uh, interesting training. He used to train for hours. Nubre, like, literally for hours. Yeah. Was yeah. he a French? Where, where, where was He's he French, from? Yeah, French, French yeah. from from some French <coughs> uh, Guadeloupe or some French uh, Caribbean island. Well, he's, he was from France. Yeah. So he got his initial size, I guess, training heavy. And then years later, he would just train for hours, and that's maintaining his size and keeping him very, yeah, very lean. Yeah. Uh, I think it takes some kind of stimulant as well when he's training, because he just used to train for hours, and it'd just be always super lean. I thought he had an, you know, I would put him more like a Frank Zane type yeah, of Yeah, very, in the, very in small waist, little joints. Yes. Maybe some similarity to Flex uh, Wheeler in, in that uh, Earlier days, regard. maybe, when he was coming up. Uh, but Sergio Oliver is, I mean, uh, Arthur Jones was the one that really bought uh, genetics and you know as, as a factor it wasn't really talked about before like you know buy Arnold's chest routine and get a chest like Arnold like no you can't do that mm -hmm. man you, you know Arnold is Arnold um, so Arthur Jones pointed that out he's like you know your potential of a muscle to grow is limited by the length of the muscle belly because it can never be wider than it is long and it wouldn't function so if you've got long muscle bellies you have the potential to build more muscle mass and Sergio Oliva had uniformly long muscle bellies on 
like everywhere on his body. Um, it's probably the most genetically gifted. Who? Uh, uh, what would you say was older ever? He was the most genetically gifted. I would body. think so. Yeah. Wow, that's a pretty powerful thing to say, right yeah. there. Yeah. I mean, Ron, Ronnie was very gifted, but I would say Sergio was probably had the best genetics. And look what the guy looked like in the late '60s with what they had available. L then. Let me ask you this: uh, Phil Phil Heath speaks very highly of you, yeah. and Phil Heath uh, sees you as more also a scientist because he's also a guy that went to school, got his degree, he got a degree in uh, accounting and then decides to go into bodybuilding because he was a genetic freak as well for yeah. what he was doing in basketball. I'm just curious your opinion on this. Last year, when he went against, uh, uh, he went Sean against Rodin, Rodin right? Yeah. Went against uh, Rodin. And you know, you look the picture here when the two went against each other, there was a lot of controversy. That's probably not the best picture because abs, abs, maybe Phil is not fully flexing his abs. Did you, were you at Mr. Olympia 2018? I, I wasn't there, no. Did I you follow there. it at all or not really? I did follow it and there was a lot of criticism uh, against Phil Heath previous to this. For the stomach? About his stomach, yeah. his belly being um, protruding, mm -hmm. being distended. So the judges were hearing this and Arnold made a big issue as well at his contest about why the guy's got big bellies now. So there was like a, uh, a lashback almost against guys having distended bellies so you can see on this picture that still Phil is having some trouble mm -hmm. with his uh, abdominal area I think he had a hernia as well he did he did so surgery on this pose I'd say he's losing on this pose just because it is an abs and thigh pose and Sean's showing more separation well that's just one pose there's seven compulsory poses that that are scored so we'd have to look at all seven of them to did you follow it at all or not really when it was taking place not really, but um, I'm the opinion that Sean was kind of lucky because maybe Phil was not at his best. And also he's being, you know, they were really analyzing his, his abdominal area to see yes. how it was. Um, but, you know, Phil is clearly a better f bodybuilder. He doesn't have weak points. Sean has still, his arms are quite weak. His back is a bit weak. Sometimes I wonder, you know, in boxing, you know, one of the reasons I'm not a boxing fan. I, 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 I watch a good fight, just yeah. to watch a good yeah. fight, but it's not like what it used to be when it used to. It was, it was different for me when I watched before than I do today. But, you know, sometimes boxing, this whole political thing with boxing, the judges, oh, I scored a scorecard this against yeah. Triple G versus Canelo, whatever, you know, all these, I don't no, know. But at least in boxing, you can <coughs> knock the guy out. You can knock you the guy out. Knock you him can't out. knock then him out no, there's no, That's what I'm saying, the benefit no debate, of that, right? right? Like Ruiz knocked out the heavyweight, yeah. you know? And it's no debate. It's black and white. Black and white, yeah. So, you know, y you look at this and you're seeing a guy like Phil who is maybe trying to go get his eighth or ninth, right? He's yeah. a, the, the gift, he's going after it and he's good for the brand. Maybe he's not the most uh, liked figure because he doesn't want to do what everybody tells him to do and some of the guys don't like him. How much is politics involved in, uh, in Mr. Olympia? Well, I don't think it's possible to fix the contest because you'd have to sit everyone in a room and you know pre-plan it but people are influenced by what's going on and what's being said and so on so I'm sure on this contest because there's so much backlash and criticism about Phil's distended stomach over the past two years mm -hmm. I'm sure it was an issue that everybody was Paying looking at right yeah. you know so it came more into focus and uh, maybe that's what uh, let him down and maybe that's why I lost the contest um, but again I'd have to see all the poses to have a really 
strong opinion I'd on really, that. I'd really be curious about your, your thoughts on it because, you know, uh, uh, I ask around and a lot of people say Phil should have won it, but they just kind of wanted to go have a different direction to, you know, have yeah, some Maybe it was kind of sending a message that this, we don't want this thing anymore because it looks bad. I got so it. could it. be a, you know, general feeling of that. Not, I don't think it's possible to fix the contest. That would be, you know, if the contest was fixed, it would have come out by now. Somebody would have said something, you know. You, you, think, you think any other brand can compete with Mr. Olympia brand? Very difficult. I hear a rumor that there's another contest next year that I somebody's hear putting well. on. Yes. I don't want to say too much, but... Uh, what do you think about that? We don't have to mention the name because we yeah. both know, but what do you think I think about it's that? great, man. Okay. I think it's great. More competition's good in anything. So, for instance, um, when Vince McMahon came along with the WBF or whatever it was, mm -hmm. the Bodybuilding Federation, mm -hmm. And they offered all these contracts out to the guys and give some big contracts, you know, 200, 250 grand a year to guys. Weeder had to step up their game. Up to that point, Joe Weeder was not really handing out big contracts. But now he's got competition and they're handing out contracts. So Weeder then had to step up. Weeder was a businessman. If he could get you to do something for free, they'd get you to do it for free. And that's what used to happen in the magazines. All those guys didn't get paid back in the day. They'd get maybe some ad space where they could sell their um, booklets or something like that, and then you can make money. So that's what Joe used to give them, nothing, right? That's the form of payment from Joe. Yeah, they get nothing, man, as little as possible, right? He's a businessman. So but do I, you, th you really think somebody, for that. you really think somebody can compete with the brand? With Mr. Olympia? Mr. Olympia. I don't think they would want to. I think they'd want to work in conjunction. I don't think they can compete against it. Like an Arnold Classic and- But, but if somebody came along and started their own federation and put up huge money, yeah, they could. But why would somebody put up huge money the uh, unless they're going to get a return? The question is, is you know, the challenge has always been, are people going to pay to watch it? You know, are yeah. they going to show it on national television? And is, is big studios going to be okay with knowing that everybody's on G8 steroids? Is this a family tie? You know, that's always been a bit of the controversy. I, I don't think bodybuilding is like, I, I never, I was realistic. I never thought bodybuilding is going to be mainstream like football or baseball or soccer or something like that. It's too specialized. And again, we got the, 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 you know, you got the controversy about the drugs, not that bodybuilding is the only sport that is involved with that. A lot of sports, you know, even cycling. Uh, of course. Many, many sports. But, but everybody. But bodybuilding is obvious, right? Because mm -hmm. you look so different. And you know, got this guy, huge muscles with veins everywhere. I mean, it looks, it looks, um, extraordinary to the average person so immediately they think oh that's drugs where you see a guy riding up mountains for hours you don't think that because he looked like a regular guy skinny yeah arm strong yeah. while everybody else is doing the whole PED yeah and he's one of many and he's competing in that marketplace uh, who, who, who are you close to any Mr. Olympia guys you got really close to where you have a friendship with um, I'm friends probably best friend I got are the guys that I used to compete against he came Towards the end is uh, Chris Cormier. Uh, he come to England to, I, I put a kind of a challenge out to him because Chris is just like the biggest party guy and you don't mind me saying that. <laughs> He's the Everybody biggest party guy that, in bodybuilding. Yeah. Everyone knows that, right? So Chris is partying, has multiple girlfriends, all this chaos going on and still he's doing very well. So I said, hey man, you should come over to England and train with me because you need to be like a boxer, like Tyson going to the Catskills or something. You're like, just put yourself in isolation. 
away from all this nonsense, man. I mean, it's always there if you want it, right? It's always a party or a girl or what. It's always there, man. But switch it off. Put yourself into this 100%. Come to England. I'll train you. Get your apartment by the gym. And you could win Mr. Olympia. He didn't listen to me for about five or six years. Then he came out and they had some injuries. And I'm like, Chris, that's not happening now, man. It's too, too late. late. Yeah, it's yeah. too late. I read somewhere 16 years ago, the guy was incline pressing six plates. Some, yeah, he was strong as a ball, Some man. ridiculous amount of weight as yeah. he was pushing. He came to train with me. You can still see the on, on YouTube. He came to train legs with me and he lost his lunch outside the gym. <laughs> <laughs> but you have a reputation for that. I mean, yeah. you, you, you got a reputation for doing that. Yeah, because I, I, I push people to where they haven't been before. And he said himself, it's like, I, I'm like been in this game for so long. I've trained with all the top people, the top trainers. He said, I, I didn't know shit. Did you spend a lot of time with Mike and uh, Ray Menser or no? Not a lot of time. I mean, uh, Mike was one of my heroes when I started. Physique, I liked his physique. It was like powerful, strong, mm -hmm. rugged, but it was more about the, the, the intellect and the, um, the questioning mind, which, which I had. And the, the, the training methods, the training systems, which basically came from Arthur Jones and he just tweaked it a little bit. And I took that and tweaked it a little mm. bit. And uh, someone introduced me to Mike when I went out to Venice and we were gonna do a clothing brand together. So, you know, we're getting close, but uh, Mike and Ray were like, they had an interesting relationship. They were always, always fighting. So it, it, the, the whole clothing plan we had and everything fell apart because those guys were always clashing and falling out with each other and so on. Uh, so the whole the clothing thing didn't work out and uh, Mike was uh, most of the time very rational and stable, but sometimes he wasn't. Uh, he had problems with alcohol and uh, amphetamines and stuff like that. So I think he'd be back and forth with that. So that's why we, you know, uh, trained with him a few times and kind of I backed off after a bit when I saw that situation. Yeah. I think he, well, he died in 01 and then his brother died like a couple of weeks later. Some random yeah. story like yeah. that. I don't. Uh, Mike passed away and uh, Ray was shortly afterwards. So I don't know how that happened. Yeah. But I think Ray was not, was not super healthy anyway. Had Ray was not healthy? No, he already had a heart attack, a mild heart attack, and mm. he had some kidney problems. I think he was on medication for that. So I don't know what happened. Maybe he lost his brother and he decided he didn't want to live. and. I, don't, I really don't know. The guy you but fired, you couldn't live without. Pretty interesting when you think about yeah. it. Let me ask you, you know, you know how you're coming up and uh, a lot of times, uh, I think it's 1957 when they banned marijuana. I think that's the year when marijuana in I'm US back got, in the 30s. Is it 30s? Yeah. Oh, 30s is uh, the guy who, yeah, he was worried about linking it to Caucasians, uh, you know, being with yeah, African-Americans. It was just, it was just propaganda, and, yeah, propaganda. Most of it was sponsored by uh, alcohol companies and... Then you got the paper companies that didn't want hemp to be used. They want to, you know, use the trees and. And then, you know, there's cigarettes a lot, there's comes a lot, a lot of forces. Yeah. Right? There's a lot of forces uh, that were that were working against it. But you know, today, fast forward till today, only one person's ever been documented to die for marijuana, right? I mean, I it's, don't know. I don't know. I don't think there's one person. Sixty days ago, they yeah? said one person. Yeah, I had these guys that were debating. The only reason I, I know okay. this is because these guys were debating. There was one person that apparently I know vaping right now is five, but I think right. marijuana is one person in all these years okay. that's been documented. And it's five million for alcohol. It's a very big number for alcohol, right? But go to steroids. You know, you go to mm -hmm. steroids and you 
Think about the names. These are just names I remember. You got, yep. Ma, is it Munzer? Andreas Munzer, Mohamed Banaziza, Sonny Schmidt. Matarazzo, Kovacs, Piana, yep. El Sombati. You know, you got some of the name, na names you're looking yep. at. How, from you knowing what you know, how much of it is linked to the actual usage of the drugs and how much of it is maybe they did things on the side that also caused that? Well, here's the thing. Once, once you, you know, because... Doctors used to say, first of all, steroids are very dangerous, and secondly, they don't do anything for your athletic performance. So, well, you're lying about the one thing, because we know, <laughs> athletes know it's going to increase in performance. Absolutely. So, you're probably lying about the other thing as well. Um, so, I think it's a matter of quantity and duration and individual genetics. Like some people can smoke cigarettes till they're 80, 90 years old and they're fine. Somebody else smokes cigarettes and have a heart attack in their 40s. So individuals. Uh, and also once you, you kind of lose your inhibition about taking chemicals and drugs because there's a steroid and then there's the anti-estrogen and then there's uh, something else. And then, and then guys uh, take, you know, maybe a painkiller, an anti-inflammatory, you just, lose that fear and then I think some of the people that have had fatalities in bodybuilding steroids may have been a factor but I think there was other things involved as well uh, Mohammed Benaziza died from diuretic use diuretics are very dangerous people use them to lose water to get in, you know try and get in shape better but you, you, you lose electrolytes as well you lose sodium potassium you, you can you know you, you can stop your heart if your sodium potassium is, is too imbalanced, and that's what happened with Benaziza. Literally, the whole body was cramping, and the heart, the muscle, and his, his heart cramped. Mike Maserato, obviously, he was on steroids. Um, but Mike used to eat five pounds of beef a day as well. So that was probably more a factor than the steroids, or the combine of the two. Five pounds of beef a day? Yeah. yeah you really, didn't need that kind of meat. No, mainly chicken and egg whites. A little bit of beef now and then, um, but now it, you know we're starting to learn now that red meat and you know even super high protein all the time is probably not that healthy for you. So you got a combination of factors here all all going on, and then some people using recreational drugs as well on top of all this mm -hmm. is like, um, it's, you know, it's, it's abuse. You, you could say any anything outside of medical use could be abuse, so well, maybe we're all abusing them, but. Uh, my approach was to use what I needed to use to get the the benefit from it and where is that where is enough and where is too much so I, I pretty much figured that out so, so there, it, there was some stress on my body but it's like the way I look at it is like okay so maybe it's like smoking so I smoked for 10 years and then I stopped did you no, You're saying I'm, 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 make, you know, I'm making the comparison right. between taking steroids and smoking. Uh, so got it, yeah. 10 years of steroid use and then stopping and then following a different lifestyle. Um, that's what I'm doing now. So I'm probably uh, kind of re maybe repairing some of the damage. Your body's got a very good ability to repair itself if you're given it the right environment and the right things, so right at, factors. At, at what one point when I'm in the army, I wish I had the picture to show it to you. My barracks, the entire wall was pictures of all of you. Every one of you yeah. during that time, yourself, Cormier, you know, even Aaron Baker. I don't know if you remember, yeah, I remember Aaron, Aaron Baker, yeah, Sombati, all these guys on my wall. I'm talking. I didn't use a single inch 
Some of it was women. I had to have a woman as well because the sergeants would come. So. A lot of it was <laughs> so. women. Angel, like, boy. <laughs> Angel Tevis was one. There was another, I think, Monica Bryant. Monica Bryant, yeah. yeah. Had all these uh, pictures on the wall, right? And for me, I'm going to be Mr. Olympia. I made that decision yeah. at 16 years old. I think I'm going to make a run at this, right? And then I got out, and I started spending time with these guys. And I actually went and looked at analytics at 18 years old, 19 years old. I started looking yeah. at them. I'm like, you know what? You're 6'4", okay? Your calves are skinnier than your uh, uh, forearms are, okay? You, your, your legs have That would have be been, okay these days. Guys don't seem to have any calves. Yeah, I, I agree <laughs> with that. And maybe it works today, but yeah. you were pretty stacked when yeah. it came down to that. So I looked at the whole thing, and logically, I just said, you know... I don't know if I have the right height to win today because you saw Kovacs, 400 pounds, Jean-Pierre Fuchs, yeah. you know, he had this physique. And there were some of these guys in that community, the taller guys, right? Yeah. You didn't see any guys at that time winning. Harder for a taller tall. guy to have very balanced proportions. Normally a taller guy's got, his legs are too long or something, the proportions mm-hmm. are better off and it doesn't look uh, as impressive. But post-Arnold, who's one that's six, you know, that's got Nobody. a height like that? Nobody. So what, you're 5'11", I believe, 5'11 and I a half. I think myself, Lee Haney, and Ronnie Coleman, all about the same height. So you, you think the prime height is 5'10", 5'11", maybe shy of six? It looks like that, yeah. It looks like that. You've got the stature. You know, you're not very small. You've got the stature. You're able to carry a lot of size and, and fill out that frame and look very impressive. The taller guys, the, somehow they lack something. Lou Ferrigno came back in 92 and competed, I think it's 6'6", six, six or something like that. He looked very good, he looked better than he did back in the 70s, but um, Tough. Yeah, he, couldn't, he couldn't get in the top 10, I think it was like 13th or something. Yeah, it's a, it's a game for 5'11". Based, yeah. on, based on what data tells me is this, are you a big math guy? Are you a big data guy? Are you a big numbers guy? I'm pretty good with numbers because I spent many years throwing numbers around in my head. So I would sit down, <clears throat> and if there was a food in front of me, it was just a habit. I would analyze how much calories I think are there, how much carbs, how much protein. It's just like a process going on. And, it, and I did it for years after I stopped competing. I didn't want to do it. It was annoying me that, that I would do that. I would just shut up, man, just eat your dinner. You don't need to know that anymore, <laughs> but it's still clicking away, yeah. you know, it was a habit. So I'm always playing around with numbers, so I'm pretty good at working out percentages and, and numbers and stuff. Did you ever say, like, you know, I think I can go be a hedge fund manager or go be a stock? Never like that. That never pulled you into going to... Because it's not interesting for me. Yeah. There's, no, there's no passion there. So it there's had no to interest, interest you. Even yeah, it had, had to had interest me, numbers. yeah. Yeah, right. even money, <clears throat> it doesn't really interest me that much. As long as I've got enough to do what I need to do, it's, like, it's not a really huge driving factor for me. Would you consider yourself a masochist? I know this is a strange question. Let me simplify yeah. it, maybe. Somebody that enjoys pain, like... You know, the way you explain yeah. pain and suffering is like, you know, maybe this guy, like you would say, I used to sit there, I was uncomfortable, and I would sit yeah. down, but I'm like, man, I've, I'm so glad I am, because that just means I gave everything. Yeah. Did you enjoy pain? Like, y- y- was it something well, you enjoyed? I'm not the guy that wants to be tied to a wall and whipped in a dungeon or something like yeah. that. And it's not pain in itself, I don't enjoy. I enjoy the ability to master the pain and to be above it and to be able to go through it with my determination because your impulses are telling you to stop. It's hurting. Why would you carry on? Just stop, man. But no, there's a goal at the end that I want to get to. So in order to achieve that goal, I'm willing to go through the pain and I will go through the pain 
and I will take pride in the fact that I was able to do that. It's like mastery over oneself, you know, mastery over your instincts that wants to be comfortable all the time and doesn't want to go through that. But nothing that's really of value comes without some kind of pain or some sacrifice, I don't think. Did you have a formula for uh, uh, handling pain? I know you said some things right now. Was pride behind it, but was there a formula for pride you? Did you tell focus on the focus on the goal. Yeah, focus on the goal, or the goal of that particular workout, of that exercise, which is all a micro of the macro, which is at the end of the year you're going to compete. That's the ultimate goal for that year. But breaking that down, and so I would, I would have the goal in mind before I went to the gym. So I would sit down, I would analyze last week's workout. Mm -hmm. So maybe I am data analyzing in my primitive way. I've got my book there and I've written down last week's workout. So I did eight reps last week with this weight. I got to do nine this week. Or I got to put five pounds on the bar or, you know, I, I got this. So I've got a definite goal when I go in the gym that I've got to do. And I've got to push and I've got to get through, I'm going to get to that. And if I got to go through pain to get there, so be it. I'll go through the pain. Does, does that mindset bleed into every aspect of your life, or was it mainly one-dimensional? Uh, anything physical, I'll, I'll fall into that zone. Even now, Tracking. if I go do it, if I do it, I you know, it. I, I, I'm riding my bike in the mountains in Spain. But I still catch myself timing myself and seeing if it was better than last week. There's <laughs> <laughs> still like yeah, I got two side. voices. Yeah. I, got, I got two voices. Like when it's getting really difficult now. Before I just had one voice, now I got two. I got the one, which I, I made a video one time, put on my um, Instagram, I was like, coming up this fucking mountain, and I just got off a plane, and I feel tired, and it's really tough, and, and I got this one pussy here on my shoulder, and the pussy's telling me, listen, man, you fucking did all this shit before, you won six Mr. Olympus, and if you're tired, you don't need to go up that mountain today. You can go, you can stop, man, you can go back down. And the other one, got a fucking lion here. He's like, fuck that shit, don't listen to him. You gotta do it, man. You started, now you can't stop. You gotta finish it, you gotta do it. So try to listen to the lion like 95% of the time. If I'm doing something that requires that, like if it's physical, I'll drop into that mode. But if it's you know something else, I'm being social or whatever, I'm, I can be very relaxed. A couple thoughts here before we wrap up. TRT, you know, you're hearing a lot of people right now. I'm, I, I run a company and I got yeah. a lot of friends. We got all these agents nationwide. Yeah. Doctor recommended I should get on TRT, I'm 45. Doctor recommended I should consider doing some TRT, I'm 50. And, and they're combine, combining it with some more, you know, some of the other, not necessarily yeah. GH, but some peptides, hey, yeah. combine it with this. Uh, what are your thoughts on that with TRT? I think if, you're, if you get a blood test, and your free testosterone is below the, the normal range, then getting TRT will be a, a super positive thing for you and for your health. Um, I spoke to some doctor in England who was quite enlightened, and uh, if anyone's interested, there's a book as well called The Ageless Man. Mm -hmm. The Ageless Man, it used to be only in French, but now they've published it in, in English, and it's a doctor over you know decades has been treating patients. So basically like the age-related diseases that we get as we get older, um, depression, diabetes, arthritis, um, increased body fat, losing muscle mass, all these things can be reversed by just simply putting a testosterone back where in an optimal range, let's say. 
So your health and your quality of life will be much better. So I'm a big supporter of, yeah, if you don't need it, if your testosterone is normal, don't screw with it. You don't need it, yeah? But if you're below the normal range, uh, you're gonna be a healthier, happier person if you put it back in, in, the, in the normal range. That's for sure. Probably your wife is as well. Absolutely. I like yeah. the, the, the bedroom springs <laughs> exactly, are break yeah. a little bit more than they usually will. And my wife's younger than me, so, you know? You have to keep up, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And she's a professional competitor she's herself. An athlete, so man. She's an athlete, absolutely. Yeah. And she's from Brazil. And she's from Brazil. Boom. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you win in every aspect with that one. <laughs> you did good with that one. Uh, last, last thing here is uh, some of the things you talk about, which is, which is uh, very interesting, when you start dropping comments on 9-11 and what happened there and who did this and who did that. Yeah. You're from UK. I know you're living in Spain right now. What are your thoughts about Boris Johnson, Brexit? How are you seeing that? Well, the Brexit thing, I'm in favor of that, right? Why? Because I'm against globalization and the centralization of power, and that's what they were trying to do, to make Europe into one super state like the United States. But it's not. Here you have a common language, a common culture. In Europe, we have different languages, different cultures, and also uh, UK is an island. We're separated from the continent, so we feel like we're not really European, we're, we're British. Um, so for those reasons, I was in favor of the Brexit when people voted to go out. So they fucking voted to go out. Get it, get it fixed, man. But there's forces and people that don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. and they're like, maybe we should have a second vote after we've caused you a lot of fear and inconvenience, maybe you want to reconsider your vote. Like, almost it's like that. Um, so it may cause me some inconvenience because I live in Spain, it may not, I'm not really sure. I don't think so, because I'm resident there anyway. And there's an agreement between UK and, and Spain that Spanish people residing in UK carry on and vice versa. So I don't think personally it would affect me, but for the reason I'm against globalization, so I'm for Brexit, but what they're doing now, screwing around, uh, I really don't know. I'm not keeping track of it, but people voted to get out, so let's get out. You think Boris Johnson's the right guy to help uh, make that happen? I don't know, man. I'm not a big fan of politicians. I think they're all clowns and they're all puppets. They're usually getting their strings pulled from, from somewhere else. All around, not just yeah, UK. All around, all man. Around. Everywhere, everywhere, man. And if they can't pull your strings, Look what happened here in, uh, in Dallas, man. If you don't play the game, that's what can happen. So, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not a big believer in like, it's a game, man. You not, you're, not happy, you're not happy with this guy? You're not happy with the, the brown guy? We, wow, we got a totally different guy now, yeah? But what really changes is some superficial things, but deep levels, I don't know if it's gonna change that much. Hopefully it will, hopefully it will. When you say Dallas, you're talking about 1960. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You're talking about John F. Kennedy, Dallas, yeah. is what you're yeah. talking about. Okay. So I brought uh, uh, Jim Jenkins. Jim Jenkins, uh, I brought him as a guest. And we launched the interview on the day of uh, the anniversary of John F. Kennedy getting assassinated. And Jim Jenkins was one of the four uh, guys who was in the autopsy holding his brain okay. after he got shot. And uh, he says, I looked at the brain. Somebody worked on the brain before it came to us. Somebody had done some work to it. So, how is, what kind of work? Meaning somebody had done some incisions, somebody had already done some- some samples or something? Yes, way before we looked at it. And 
the brain was supposed to be, the body was supposed to be in a completely different casket, but they took it and they brought it earlier where Jackie's riding in the car thinking the body's in the back and it's not, it was in a completely different car. And his suspicion was, anyways, this is another conspiracy. His yeah. suspicion was that, you know, maybe Lyndon uh, B. Johnson was uh, uh, behind the whole thing because uh, he wasn't too happy about the amount of attention uh, John F. Kennedy was getting. So we took him that day and he gave us a tour the whole spot. Like he was explaining us when he hadn't been there since Wow. years ago. For him, it was a difficult time to get that. We took his wife there. We have the whole uh, video with it. It's very interesting. First week, the interview got, you know, nearly, first three days, uh, the day came, I got 600,000 views, and then all of a sudden, the video was taken down, and it flatlined. Well, that's, yeah. uh, that's so, a sign right there. Man. Yeah, it was interesting. <laughs> if I they was, shut you up, you're onto something. I was, I was uh, very curious what happened with that interview, but it got some attention. Last one here before we wrap up. I'm going to do speed round. I'll give you a name. You tell me what's the first thing that comes to your mind. All okay, right. very simple. First one, Mike Menzer. Yeah, Mike was an independent thinker, uh, a rebel, and um, big inspiration uh, for me. Joe Weider. Joe Weider is uh, an out-and-out businessman, but he also had almost like a childlike love for bodybuilding. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Arnold. Arnold, I don't know that well. Um, we did clash in the magazine where he criticized me and I responded to him. And interestingly enough, after that, uh, Arnold came to me at the Arnold, they had the big expo there. So normally Arnold will go to the big, the big sponsors, they sponsor the show and do you know, a photo call mm -hmm, at their mm -hmm. booth. So twice I was there with a little, I had a little booth you know, promoting the nutrition and stuff. And Arnold came over two times to say hello and shake hands and take pictures and everything. So maybe there's some begrudging respect there that because normally nobody stands up to Arnold, but I I just believe and treat everybody as equal. So I don't care if you're president of the United States or you're the guy that cleans the toilets. I, I treat everybody the same. So I don't kiss anybody's ass or I don't look down on anybody. I treat everybody the same. Um, so that's my policy. So, yeah, Arnold is like, uh, let's be straight, without Arnold, there probably wouldn't be the bodybuilding that there is now. So some aspects of Arnold maybe I don't like, but that, that is a fact. Arnold has promoted bodybuilding more than any other individual. That's Absolutely. a big compliment. That's yeah, a very through, big compliment. Through Pumping Iron, through the movies, and through his visibility and, and so on. So Interesting. El Sombati, Nasser El Sombati, I'm curious. Yeah, uh, Nasser El Sombati, uh, Never really got on that well with him. Really? No, I never did. I, I found him to be, um, what's the word in England? We say two-faced. Two-faced, the kind of guy that would be smiling in your face and stab you in the back. I'm sorry to talk bad about somebody that, that's passed on and is not here, um, but that's just how I, I find the guy. And um, probably the guy that came closest to beating me also. In 1997, I was definitely not at my best. I had the tricep injury going into that contest, and NASA was very good, so it was a very close contest. Some people think she should have won. Uh, it didn't happen, I won, but uh, it was definitely the closest one of all my competitions. Was there anything that happened that caused you to think to, uh, some way about him, or no? Uh, observations. Oh, purely observations, yeah. but nothing that happened? No, I just okay. I observe them. Okay. Even, I observe Got people it. how they treat other people. Fair enough. Because if you have some status, Everybody treats you nice, you know? Everyone treats me nice because I'm Dorian, I'm Mr. Olympia, but how do you treat the guy that's the waiter? Or how do you treat this guy that you say is your friend? And, 
you know, I, I kind of observe people. Got it. Kevin LeBron. Kevin is uh, one of my rivals from, from the 90s and uh, one of the guys that I get on very well with. Uh, interesting, interesting guy, very, very talented. Could have been better than he was because many years he took like six months off and played in a rock band and didn't even lift mm -hmm. the weight and lost <laughs> like 40, 50 pounds and then put it back all on again. So if he didn't do that, he potentially could have been better, but he chose to do what he did. Tom Platts. Tom Platts was like, uh, is an icon. And uh, I love Tom Platts for his passion. His passion for the sport, his passion for training is like, I would rather die than not give 100% in the gym. I mean, he's even probably maybe more intense than I am. Um, and, uh, wow. you know, he, he was very popular in England. He spent a lot of time in England coming over there and doing guest posing and seminars. So he was a big inspiration um, and a big personality as well. He'd never won the Mr. Olympia, but he made his mark uh, by being himself and having this best legs. You know, I've never seen legs like that before or afterwards. Uh, Lila Brada. Lila Brada, um, not somebody that I really jive with, you know, I don't know why. I think he's a Lila bit, uh, I think Lee used to be an engineer or something. I find him a little bit, uh, a little bit cold and just no, no big deal, like no friction, nothing, but I just didn't really get on with him that much. Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill, well, yeah, I think if, if facts were known, he wouldn't be the the hero that is uh, portrayed to be you know uh, they say the winners write history and i think that's definitely the the case there it was a badass murderer motherfucker man that's what he was is that good or bad <laughs> i think it's pretty bad uh i'm you know i hate war i hate violence i hate oppression um and uh Winston Churchill was involved in some bad shit. So even though he was held up to be the hero of the British people because mm. he, was a, he was a prime minister and he made these oppressive speeches and this bulldog spirit never give up and everything like that. Um, so maybe being British people expect me to put him on a pedestal. But if you see what he was involved with and things around the world, then it's not a hero of mine. How about Chamberlain? I, I really don't know too much okay. about him. You, you got it. I know he was a pr he was a prime minister before the war, and uh, he went to speak with Adolf Hitler and so on. And uh, that's pr that's all my I know. I don't you know it. too much about him. Uh, uh, Lou Ferrigno. Lou Ferrigno is somebody I got on quite well with. I think also because he was married. So you know, uh, me and my wife, we yeah. actually been to his house, and he showed me his gym there that he used to train people in. He told me the story about Michael Jackson to come there I don't know quite what Michael Jackson was doing with that weight training but apparently it was at some point he used to come at four or five in the morning in his limo and train him in the gym there so I got on well with uh, with Lou Ferrigno um, as I say he was a family man uh, so we spent a bit of time together and of course he transcended bodybuilding as well going into you know Hollywood. doing the Hulk and yeah. the Hollywood and so on so that again brings more visibility to the sport I think so he did a good job there what was your experience with Mike Tyson? Something happened with you and Mike Tyson, I believe. I've met Mike a couple of times. Uh, we've got a mutual friend, a uh, guy from, from UK called Joe Egan. And Joe is Irish. And apparently uh, he used to spar with Tyson and they became very good friends. And Tyson could never put him on the floor. He never went on the floor. And Mike Tyson said, you're the toughest white guy in the world. <laughs> so I think Joe got a book out now, like the toughest white guy in the world. 
Um, so, you know, a mutual friend, and then I met Tyson in Vegas, and uh, hello, Mike, you know, Dorian, and I know Joe and everything. He's like, he looks at me like, Dorian? Dorian, Dorian who? I said, I'm Dorian Yates. He's like, man, you're a badass nigger. I was like, okay, whatever you say, Mike, <laughs> whatever you say. And uh, actually, I was, uh, we were planning to do a podcast together last week in LA, but we couldn't get the, the schedules. That's to right, match. he's got a podcast as yeah, well. Yeah, he's got a yeah. podcast called Hot Boxing, yes. where you basically chat and smoke weed, which yes. would be like lovely to do that with Mike Tyson. So um, we're going to do that next time I'm in LA. And of course, Mike is uh, now in the, in the cannabis business, so we have that. Uh, in common as well. I, I'd love to you know, sit down and, and speak to him. I think it'd be fascinating. I think it's going to be fascinating for the viewer, just as yeah. much as for you to, yeah. to watch to see yeah. how that's going to take place with the two of you. Dorian, uh, final thoughts here. Uh, I know you were talking about your uh, nutrition company. Uh, is the, the website, obviously, we'll put all the information on yeah. the bottom there. And I know it's not yet for U.S., but everywhere outside of U.S., people yeah. can order. DYNutrition.com. And we do have the most of our requests demand is coming from the US. So we're doing very well in Europe and the Middle East, and now we're already putting plans in place to, to manufacture in the US and sell in the US. So uh, maybe more here again next year, I think. Yeah, well, we'll put the link for anybody that wants to find out Thanks. more about what you're doing there. And uh, again, it, it, for me to go from us meeting 20 years ago to now uh, sitting there having a conversation together, <laughs> it's really, really interesting to me. But I appreciate you flying out and uh, Come uh, and paint a visit to us. Thanks for I really me, enjoyed it. It's been great. Thanks, brother. Thank you. Appreciate Thank you. you. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And by the way, if you haven't already subscribed to Valuetainment on iTunes, please do so. Give us a five-star. Write a review if you haven't already. And if you have any questions for me that you may have, you can always find me on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Just search my name, Patrick Bid-David. And I actually do respond back when you snap me or send me a message on Instagram. With that being said, have a great day today. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.